Oh my god. Everything in and relating to technology. With three techno experts Eric Newman, hi! Chris Grabowski, hello! And Tyler Dinner, hey there! This week's episode Under the Hood of JavaScript. Hello, everybody, welcome to yet another Polar Quest. My name is Eric Newman, and to the left of me is Chris Grabowski in his place where he usually records the show, which is a basement inside of uh, some kind of dungeon somewhere. How are you? Um, we're doing all right. Uh, we are going where nobody wants to go uh, today's show, so I think a dungeon will be appropriate. Exactly. And to your left, in a new, uh, a new studio in the sky, we've got Tyler Dinner over there. Hi, Tyler. How are you? I- I'm good. Except we all have to go hang out in Christian's mom's basement with him tonight. Yeah, after the show. Uh, oh, okay. She's very lonely, and uh, <laughs> so we gotta, we gotta help her out. At least we can uh, play music since she's hard of hearing. I know. Well, the thing is, is that she didn't call me back after last night. I'm a little miffed, so I think we should go over there and talk to her. Um, sorry about that. Anyway. You you can't leave the man in Shevitz over there. She's going to keep hitting it and fall asleep. You gotta, why don't you call me when, you're, when you want the sauce? <laughs> I've been drinking all day, and you haven't called once. Well, I'm sorry, Miss Krabaski. That's enough out of you. No, I'm just, you know, we've got a lot of stuff. To- I don't care. Anyway. That, th- there are so many things that are like... There's no way weird. your mom actually sounds like that. It's just nice no, that your mom but- wanted the guest on the show. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Uh, so how you liking the new digs, Tyler? We helped you move two weeks ago, and you came over here to record the show last week, and this is the first show from your new studio in the sky. How are you liking it? It's amazing. It's clean. It's open. I- I'm all zen. We can see, we can hear that it's open. Uh, how uh, are you recording this in your in your living room, your new living room? I'm in my new living room next to the new computer we all built together. I probably oh, should have hung some acoustic phone panels. That's okay. I can I can bring some over as a heartwarming gift for you. I actually bought some. I bought some more to complete my wall. Um, I bought some blue ones to complement the red, but then I realized that it's gonna it's too much on the eyes. But that's that's me, a resident weirdo. Anyway. <laughs> Uh, there's a lot of stuff to get to. Uh, there's a lot of stuff to get to today. First off the top is uh, Elon Musk launched a giant penis into the sky. Uh, oh, sorry, it was a rocket. And uh, it was the uh, Falcon Heavy launch. Uh, can you, do you guys uh, know anything about that? It was uh, penis yeah, number 12. It has the world record for the most ro- uh, uh, actual uh, uh, rocket engines. Is that uh, again? Tw- it has, I believe, uh, 27 rocket engines, which is about uh, three times as many as the last uh, l- uh, largest amount of rocket engines, which is also SpaceX. Wow. And uh, the payload that they used for this was, instead of just some kind of ballast, he put in a Tesla Roadster. And with a, uh, with a mannequin wearing a SpaceX space suit in it, listening to David Bowie's Space Oddity on repeat. <laughs> Sounds like a good time. It sounds like a great time. I uh, and they took they took the photos that have come back from this are pretty hilarious, especially because you just see this image of like the mannequin with one arm and the steering wheel, and it just says and it, and it says "Don't freak out" on the dashboard, and mm. uh, and he's just jettisoning jet, jettisoning through space. 
Um, wasn't they weren't able to hit the asteroid belt like he originally projected? But uh, this is this is a great. Uh, well, I mean, this happened uh, six days ago. It was a great day for the private space industry and for the people, like unfortunately Neil deGrasse Tyson, who said that the private uh, space industry could never exist. Well, he did kind of screw himself over though, because you. Elon Musk, because by launching that dude in the sky, you know that every time that when he starts his commercial like space business, that he's going to have to make sure that he's on trajectory with that thing and on timing so that all the people that go in the stupid space rocket and the space bus he built can take stupid space Instagram pictures with the <laughs> spaceman. <laughs> so he'll have the first space tourist trap. That's what you're so saying. So it's like, yeah, uh, commercial, uh, you know, tourist space things going off. Every Tuesday at 2.34, exactly, because otherwise we'll miss the guy driving the car. (laughs) (laughs) That's right, and that overly joyous response you heard was from our studio audience, who we keep in a Tupperware container during the week, and we take them out on Sundays just for us, and it is a nice, warm, rainy Sunday evening, because global warming is a bitch. (coughs) And I did change their water out this week, Tyler, so they're... Oh, thank God. I know. They were looking a little anemic, and I was just like, I'm sorry, guys. They're all very <laughs> gray, and I just, so, yeah. We got, I, and, I run, and I, have the, I run them through my zero water purifier to make sure that they get, they don't have any lead or any of the other wonderful chemicals in New York's tap water. Anyway. <laughs> uh, moving on, um, there's this article about Poland isn't the only country censoring speech about the Holocaust, but I, that's way too heavy, and we have a lot of stuff to get to. So let's move on from that uh, <laughs> wow. to a much funnier story about toilets, because this is our <laughs> third week in a row, or fourth week in a row, I can't keep track, fourth. with yet another toilet story. It's a segment now. Uh, Remember we called it last week Toilet Humor. Toilet Talk, yeah. Um, after after China, Japan plans a toilet revolution. By 2020, uh, the Olympics for 2020 will be held in Tokyo, and all of the public restrooms for the Olympics will be high-tech with these high-tech toilets. Well, Japan's always been on the bleeding edge of toilet technology. Yeah, that was funny. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. I guess I see that pun. Especially on the bleeding edge, of course, if you have Chipotle the night before. But Um, uh, (laughs) I always knew the revolution was coming. I I just didn't think it'd be this way. That's right. And this comes right on the heels of a man's rectum that falls out after he spent 30 minutes playing online games on the toilet. Be careful. It's a place for... Yeah, fall out. It's a place. This is not an explicit episode. So, if you see um, the drain in the pool, do not. <laughs> <laughs> so I know that a lot of people love to sit on the can until their legs fall asleep, but not until your rectum falls out anyway. Well, we just have to be less crass about our toilet humor to keep the explicit tag off. Ah, yes, that's, that's true. You dropped that's a hard true. pee in the beginning, but it was a legal pee. I dropped a hard pee? Yeah. What was that? Uh, Whatever. The- <laughs> anyway, I don't listen. To, I don't listen to myself. Uh, no, it's interesting. Uh, but the uh, let's see. Uh, in the in its effort to reach its target of attracting 40 million tourists by the year 2020, a go- the government is hoping to modernize all of ja- uh, Tokyo's toilets in time for that year's Summer Olympics. And uh, I don't know specifically what the new technology will be, um, other than just the fact that they're even newer and will clean you better. You and have don't remotes. even have to sit down anymore. Exactly. <laughs> God forbid Apple makes a toilet. Uh, anyway, <laughs> moving on. Uh, in our theme of, you, of, of reconstructing old software in JavaScript, someone has created or recreated Winamp 2.9 in HTML5. 
Looks rather interesting. My question is why? I, I don't know. Uh, they're preserving <laughs> some vintage tech that really does not need to be preserved anymore, especially because it's no bigger than it used to be, but monitors have quadrupled in res- resolution, so the window is very small. So someone and, uh, spent months making music play on a computer. Yes, using hmm. APIs that already exist. And uh, let's see. Oh, it has the, the stock uh, test sound from Winamp. 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 It really whips the llama's ass. Wow. You know, there are hungry miss- children in the world. <laughs> well, <laughs> uh, don't. I mean, they, then they, they, those llamas would not be that good. To, I, I, I've got nothing. <laughs> um, yes, yeah, so whatever I, I can say to make you do that. <laughs> Nope, I got, I got nothing. See, Turned the thing is, Tyler, pig. it's taken me, it's taken me uh, 12 years to be able to develop enough of a filter where I start to say something and then I can stop myself. It, it, but before, it was just, just, I just say it, which has been really bad. <laughs> You're like the uh, kid in Mighty Ducks 2 that didn't know how to stop, but he could skate really fast. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> uh, you know, speed isn't what kills you, it's, it's stopping. That's what kills you. Um, anyway, We're moving on style. to... <laughs> Moving on to Fox News, I don't watch Fox News. I recommend nobody watch any sort of cable news, including CNN or MSNBC, because even though you think that they might be on your side just because they agree with you, they're actually just trying to manipulate you like everybody else. However, my dad is regressing into a Fox News Republican zealot, and I don't really not want to talk about that too much, but he um, showed me this segment from Tucker Carlson, who uh, perpetually looks like he's in uh, college, and uh, one of his goons bought two identical Android phones and drove around Washington, D.C. with them in his pocket. So why don't we go to Tucker's correspondent right now? Uh, That's right. It's right here. We know that Google is tracking us. We agree to it when we set up our phones. So we wanted to figure out what exactly Google is learning about us throughout the day. So here's what we're going to do. We have two identical phones. The only difference between these two phones is this one is in airplane mode. Both of the phones lack a SIM card, and they haven't been set up to access any Wi-Fi networks. So for all intents and purposes, these phones have no connection to a data network. All right, what do you think is going to happen? I'm just surprised he didn't say in all intensive purposes. That's, that's, yeah, that's good. No, seriously, what do you think is going to happen? So you've got, he has two identical Android phones. One of them is in airplane mode. One of them is not. They're not on any Wi-Fi network. They have no SIM cards. They're not activated on any cell data network. What so do you the think only is difference happen? is one knows its location. Right. So it's going to advertise based on that. But the, that's right. The only thing that well, is active in, in these phones in is mode, GPS. GPS. Mode, exactly. Yeah. I mean, I know that Google asks me all the time, are you here? It's like, no, I'm not at this coffee shop next door. You know, I but don't when you say no, right then you only increase their ability to track you everywhere. I don't say anything. I you ignore all the push exactly. notifications. Very good. You should not respond to those. Anyway, let's go on. We're going to keep them with us throughout the day. And while I travel around D.C., we're going to figure out just what Google is finding just out about me. Just what Google me. is finding out about me. Our first stop, Sims Convenience Store, just outside our Fox Bureau, for a quick coffee. From there, we took a walk to the Capitol and took a quick walk around the Senate office buildings and then decided to hop in a car and head around town. Hello. We're going to the Children's Hospital, please. To run our test, we had to do more than walk the block, so we took a tour around our nation's capital. First, due north to the Children's National Medical Center Hospital, then west to St. Albans School and the National Cathedral. Our tour around town was a 14-mile journey that lasted more than an hour. The entire time, the phones had no access to the Internet. Oh, my goodness. Not a Wi-Fi connection and not any cellular data service. 
it almost seemed quaint to assume that Google wouldn't even be able to collect data on me. Let's head back to the bureau, my friend. Ugh. That church is beautiful. Google's business model is simple. Collect data on its users and then use that data to sell targeted ads. It's a business model called surveillance capitalism. Now they have a bunch of, they have these uh, stock photo screenshots of JavaScript, JSON metadata, and some kind of blinking lights uh, behind the video, which I, uh, I, those aren't real. But does that critical data collection work even when your phones aren't connected? So we're back here at our Fox Bureau in D.C., and we've got both of our phones exactly how we left with them. The only All right, what do you think is going to happen? Well, they went to a children's center, so they're going to get advertised for, like, kids' toys and stuff. Uh, okay. Where else did they go? And they what about the phone that was on airplane mode? You're going to get a lot of D.C. stuff. The airplane mode doesn't know it's in D.C., so you're not going to get political stuff and advertisements and Smithsonian Well, it's not about giveaways. advertisements. It's about Google tracking where you, where you go. Oh. Here, let's go on. Only difference, really? I snapped a couple of bad selfies at the National Cathedral. <laughs> but otherwise, they have stayed in my pocket for the entire day. So let's find out what they know. And he has no this sperm This is left. our man-in-the-middle device. It's basically a Wi-Fi network that these phones are going to connect to once we turn their Wi-Fi on. It's going to pass data through it on the way to Google. But on the way, we're actually going to get a copy of the same data that Google's going to get. We'll be able to decrypt it and then find out where we've been throughout the day. Okay. We're going to be able to decrypt it. Is that really? I mean, I guess if they're just doing a man-in-the-middle attack with the, with the SSL uh, call, they can do that with a reverse proxy. But you don't think that the in information is encrypted when it's sent to Google? Mm. Could be. Could be. No. What was that? You know. Might be, might not, not not be. Okay. Within minutes, the numbers rolled in. The phone that wasn't on airplane mode registered more than 100 locations, 130 activities, and even 152 barometric readings. And that's without being connected to any data networks other than GPS. As soon as it hooked up to our Wi-Fi, it transmitted 300 kilobytes of data straight to Google. The phone even logged our exact locations, tracking us all around town, the Capitol, the hospital, the school, and the cathedral. Now you may notice what's missing here is the exact route that we took, but it got that data too. It knows when I got out of the car. The metadata has a time log down to the very second, tracking everything when they think that you're walking, riding, and yes, even getting out of the car. Okay, so you're thinking, this isn't a big deal, I'll just put my phone in airplane mode. Yeah, we thought of that too. This is the other phone that we had with us that no SIM card also remained in airplane mode the entire time. Let's see what kind of data it captured. The phone with airplane mode activated actually logged more locations and activities than the other phone, and it also transferred hundreds of kilobytes of data to Google as soon as it was activated. Now, just I know that they're saying hundreds of kilobytes. That's actually a lot for text. Oh, yeah. And... Uh, the thing is, it well, here, I'll just let it finish. It only has 20 more seconds. Only thing that's missing from this map is our stop at the Children's Hospital, but it still knows we were there. There it is. Exiting vehicle, 100% accuracy. Through complicated user agreements and free software, Google gets users to sign away their privacy for nothing. They're even following you in the places that most people would expect total privacy. Government buildings, a children's hospital. Don't expect privacy in government buildings. Come on, what year is this? <laughs> a private school, a church. Every move you make, every step you take, Google is watching you. 
That's right, and thank you to Tucker Carlson's correspondent. No, um, so what do you? How does that? What do you guys have to say about that? The airplane mode phone actually recorded more locations and activities than the one without airplane mode on. The airplane mode one can't be as precise with its data, so it's got to gather more rough data. I think. But why wouldn't it be the same? Uh. Because the other one knows. It can talk to something else and see that things are accurate and talk to Google's data center and get, and get readings back and like understand what's going on better, have well, outside the, processes. The, the real question, I think, here is what does airplane mode actually turn off? And I ask that because I, I can give you guys a little bit of, uh, a little bit of uh, stuff. I can't say the other word on the show. Um, for having Android, oh, I use an iPhone. But Apple in iOS 11 says that if you turn on airplane mode, it still leaves on the radios for Apple-specific devices because it got tired of people calling in saying, I can't, connect. I can't stream to my TV. Is your phone in airplane mode? Oh, yeah, it is. Wow, imagine that. So, they get, so they're actually just leaving <laughs> the radios on. But that leads you to think that airplane mode's not really doing anything. Pretty deceiving. Get Very an article deceiving. pulled up about... What it does turn off? I, I'm not certain. I mean, it's supposed to disable the cell radio, Wi-Fi, and Bluetooth. And it doesn't say anything about GPS. And from what I've seen, I, I feel like GPS is still on even when, with airplane mode. And, and this video kind of proves it, at least on Android phones. What do you think, Christian? You know how all this works. Well, sort of. <laughs> sort of? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds like Christian's season of data to not be surprised by this at all. <laughs> Christian, are yeah, you going through a really. firmware update right now? What's going on? No, I'm just, yeah, this is whatever. This happens. This happens. No, it doesn't. <laughs> yeah, it thing. does. I mean, yeah, it's happening now, but the idea is that kind of breaks the, the trust that you have in, the, in your cell phone provider. Does no, it, it doesn't. Do people not expect that? I've known. It, it didn't I would expect me when I first learned that, that Google could pull a map of everywhere I went that day. Well, that, that's one thing, but I wouldn't expect them to be able to do that with airplane mode on. Why not? You still have GPS active. Well, I know, but that's the thing. is Airplane mode is not supposed to leave GPS enabled, but it looks like it does. It's, yeah, I guess they like really try to hide what GPS is because they have that location thing enabled. Or and enabled, disabled. Like I've had location-based services disabled, but it's not GPS. Well, that's... That's they different. try to it's, make you think that, it, I feel it like. Uses, it uses GPS data to then create uh, user space data that then uh, that applications can use. That's lo- your location service. Gotcha. I'm having a really hard time hearing you, Christian. I'm sorry. Uh, okay. <laughs> All right. Um, yeah. Anyway. Uh, I, think, I, think that's, I think that's enough for the top of the show. So why don't we go to uh, some local news with our... New York Minute, where we take a look at your five boroughs. First off the top, it looks like we're victim to a fake tsunami alert, just like those uh, schmoes in Hawaii. Start spreading the news. <laughs> they had the fun one. This. Yeah, uh, that's right. Some people uh, anywhere from uh, New York to New Brunswick woke up the uh, some day, which was this on the sixth, five days ago. That was Tuesday. Uh, with a tsunami warning blaring on their phone. Uh, but that's okay because the National Weather Service for New York then posted, no, that it was just a test. 
False alarm. There's no actual they, tsunami warning. It's okay. Uh, just it, like the people in Hawaii with the missile launch. Right yeah, but it take, did it take New York a half hour to say, whoops, we messed up? New York, I think it took New someone York. getting the alert and then, yeah, it might have taken them that long. Well, you know how it goes. It's They, they send out the alert and then they realize they shouldn't have sent out the alert. So they first have to contact the head of the union to make sure that they can say that they accidentally sent it out. And then once the head of the union replies that they can, uh, it then takes the... Um, sorry, the music is really loud. Uh, but... <laughs> Uh, the, but then once the uh, head of the union says it's okay, then they g- got to figure out who actually uh, has to uh, say that uh, it was just a test. So it still has to go through many layers of bureaucracy in order to... Uh... Yeah. Christian's just trying to say that he's a union guy through and through. Oh, that's what it is. So you're, so you're supporting the unions here. That's what this is about. We don't get political, but we're doing it today. Unions for life. We don't, we're not going to get political, but we're at least going to uh, crap on unions, I guess. <laughs> That's not politics. That's not politics. shouldn't be. Well, it's let's see. Okay. politics So it says, a tsunami warning for Brooklyn, New York until 9.28 a.m. Eastern Time. And then where's the weather service saying there's not? That was at 9.05. I don't know. It looks like at 855 this person got it and then at 905 they said there was no tsunami warning so so that's quicker that is a little quicker. Well, we like doing things a little quicker here on the East Coast. Uh, just like um, there was a man slashed in the neck while sleeping on the E train. Say police. A man who was sleeping on the subway in Manhattan was slashed in the neck by a stranger early Saturday morning according to the police department. Do you live? Police said the victim was asleep on the E-Train near 14th Street around 5 a.m. when he was slashed. The victim has been taken to Bellevue Hospital in stable condition. The attacker had fled the subway. Wow. Uh, More subway violence. About 20 people attack a homeless man on the (laughs) A-Train. You laugh, but Christian, if you're ever homeless, you don't want to be in this situation. That's not nice. Did the hobo provoke it? Yeah. Uh, let's see. Uh, it happened around 9.30 p.m. on the Uptown A-Train near Columbus Circle. Police said the 29-year-old homeless man was taken to a local hospital for minor injuries to the face. Two 16-year-olds are in custody for the attack and are facing possible assault charges. Oh, that's dick. Yes. Uh, more transit stuff. Have you heard of Darius? Hootie! Yeah, exactly. The lead singer of Real Big Fish has a campaign to free him from possible jail time on Rock- Rikers Island. No, not necessarily. There's, um, I don't think they publish his, la- oh, McCollum. Darius McCollum is an autistic train enthusiast. And, um. <laughs> so are you. Yeah, funny. <laughs> Wow, Tyler, you're hilarious. Uh, the thing is, is that he, he, it, I mean, you know, it's a spectrum for a reason. Um, but the thing is, is, is that uh, uh, what is it? No. Um, so, so he has actually been like doing some side work for the MTA or trying to help out because he really loves trains and really wants to work for them, but they're not going to hire him. They're actually doing the opposite. They're prosecuting him for trespassing and doing things uh, that are technically illegal, but he just wants to help. And there's been a, there's a petition. If you go to Free Darius Now, you can read about him. And... Um, and uh, Christian knows about Asperger's system already, uh, syndrome already, so he doesn't have to worry about reading about that. But what? the thing is, is that, and this is very serious, because I'm sure Darius is a nice guy, and um, 
he just doesn't have the proper means to express himself because of his autism. It's really, it's really sad, and it's really, it's even more sad of what the city are trying to do to him. This should be some kind of cause that De Blasio takes up to win back a couple brownie points. He's a train angel that can't get into the union. Basically, uh, he was born in Brooklyn, and uh, he's uh, he's basically a gen- Rudolph for the trains. Yeah. He has a genius understanding of the New York transit system, uh, but he did not excel in school. Anyway, uh, if you want to go to freedariusnow.com, you could read more. Uh, let's see. Uh, two more things. Google is buying Chelsea Market for over $2 billion. Yay. The 1.2 million square foot office and retail property at 75 Ninth Avenue is home to Food Network and Major League Baseball. Google already is the largest tenant in the building and now is going to buy the place. Are they still going to keep the market uniquely tailored to hipsters and tourists alike? I don't know about yes. Well, I'm sure you can That's get... That's an accurate description. <laughs> I'm sure you can get your uh, co-branded Food Network Google NYC shirts. Okay, because I kind of like it. Good. Um, but what will be gone is any sort of culture in the meatpacking district. Anyway. Been gone. Uh, <laughs> sorry? It's been gone. Yeah, well, that's gentrification for you. Uh, speaking of which, the Man- uh, Manhattan DA is stopping to prosecute subway fare jumpers. Very interesting. Wait, they're not prosecuting? They're not prosecuting them. So, so if free you want to jump rides? some turnstiles, go ahead. Free subway rides! Unless it's still illegal, which in which case we don't advocate illegal behavior here at Pull Request, but if you're not going to be prosecuted, then I don't know. <laughs> it sounds like it's still illegal. You should get charged with anything. Yeah, I don't know what's going to happen. It just says uh, the New York transit system is facing major problems already, and we didn't, and we don't care about whether someone pays. And not caring about whether someone pays sets a tone of permissiveness that could cause more trouble. Absolutely, they should just make the fair a suggested donation, like the Met. Oh, I would love that. <laughs> yeah, everyone would love that. Then they'd go, hey, what happened? Well, you know, if you actually prosecute these people, it would be racist. But I don't... I don't just watch the Blasio's head explode. Hey, wait, the Mets said they won't actually prosecute people now that won't pay the, the donation. They got... That was legally, like, happening two years ago. Okay, well, now it's gone from the Met to the Metropolitan so, Transit Authority. So we can take the train there for free and go to the museum for free. There you go. It looks like most turnstile jumpers aren't arrested anyway. They're probably not caught. The penalty is a civil citation, similar to a traffic ticket. And the accused can either pay a $100 fine or fight the case in the Transit Education Adjudication Bureau. Last year, 33,000 turnstile jumpers were in Manhattan. Uh, 25,000 got summonses and 8,000 were arrested. What are you typing, Hey, Christian? wait. <laughs> oh, it, it's... Sorry, it's work-related. Um, gotcha. So maybe... Maybe this means that they won't prosecute you for jumping the turnstiles. They'll just happen to find some drugs on you when they pat and frisk you down. <laughs> oh, there you go. There yeah. You go. That's right. You know, I think the mix for the show might be a little off. That's the beauty of doing live to tape now that we messed with the settings. We had it sounding good for like a couple weeks, and then we're all messing with it again. It's just not... You're just... You're just... Nostalgic for some greatness that didn't exist. I think I I don't know I don't think you guys actually listen to these shows, but no, I'm we just actually messing with you. We actually had some good sounding shows, and now we're moving stuff around and switching some dials and like the mixers on a new the mixers on a new channel like it I was moved last my week. house around, Eric. Okay, it's, we moved your house around, Tyler. So we really uh, did move some stuff around. We'll get it back. Yeah. 
I know. It's just, it's always three steps forward, two steps back. But at least it's not going to be as bad as starting the show out of breath on Radio Free Brooklyn. I think we can all agree that was at least a, a travesty that we don't have to repeat ever again. Welcome um, to Polarcrest. We're a mess. <laughs> yeah. Polar Request is a mess. Let's uh, quickly talk about our top reads for the week. I don't have any segment music for that. Um, here's a book that I've been reading, actually. Uh, surprisingly enough, I read books. I'm trying to get back into reading, and I'm reading a book uh, called uh, The Communist Manifesto. No. Uh, <laughs> it's, actually, it's actually the opposite of The Communist Manifesto. It's called Innovation and Entrepreneurship by Peter Drucker. Uh, and it's very interesting because it was written in the mid-'80s, which was right before we were born, and it was right before the computers really overtook everything, and especially before the Internet Revolution and the smartphone revolution. So the context, historically, of this book is very interesting because it, it talks about giant industries like oil and manufacturing and apparel, but it doesn't talk too much. It talks about this new burgeoning field of high tech. Um, there, there are many takeaways from it still, like uh, most innovators, by and large, and this is definitely... Ah! My water just fell. My water just <laughs> broke. Uh, my, Yay! Yeah, let's go to the hospital. Um, no, what is it? Uh, that int- uh, innovators, by and large, he says, and this, this is how you could tell it was written before the, the startup uh, craze, uh, do, are not obscene risk takers. He says that if you want to, if you want to have a risky uh, profession where you fly by the seat of your pants, go into stockbroking, go into real estate, but not technology, not innovation. So, uh, so yeah, I don't know. It's, it's very interesting. I wish that uh, there would be a contemporary book written now, but I think he's like 95 years old. Oh, by some guy? No. But like, there's like uh, that that famous one that I think like uh, back back when like the startup uh, uh, or the tech the dot com boom uh, post post the original one, but like uh, this more like recent one where like everybody's like everybody could get a startup for some reason. There was the Yo app, right? Draw something. Uh, yeah. Uh, back then, uh, the book that seemed like a lot of those, particularly the stupid startups, their CEOs would read the uh, four hour work week. Oh, that's not yeah. real. <laughs> I'd love to be a CEO that only works four hours a week, but you got to build the company first. Yep. Um, yeah. And uh, oh, let's see. We've got some conferences coming up, and the, uh, there's a conference that Christian, you got accepted to give a talk. Yeah. At. Now, if yay! only you. Yay! Yeah. Where's the Whoa. audience? Woo! I felt stupid. Yeah! Now, if only <laughs> only you could put words together in a cogent way. <laughs> It'd be an interesting talk. Uh, no, no, I'm very. We're all very happy for he you. Makes Wh- good code talk. <laughs> exactly. Uh, what's what is the conference and what is your talk going to be about? So it's a uh, velocity San Jose. Okay, so and that, that's, that's the that's derivative of displacement. <laughs> Ooh, nice. And, but uh, what, what it actually Calculus. is is a. Uh, uh, it's one of the largest North American conferences. It focuses around uh, like infrastructure and distributed systems. And my talk's going to be on performance debugging. Performance debugging, which is what exactly? The, uh, being able to identify uh, the bottlenecks that uh, are creating uh, issues for your services, being able to handle more load. And how <laughs> How did no. you... No. <laughs> <laughs> not an After Dark show. How did you... Um, oh, now I can't get past it. No. How did, you, <laughs> how did you get selected for this? I submitted an abstract. Uh, well... First of all, work was like, hey, we need people to submit talks. I proposed this idea. They loved it. As uh, in your, so... your work was already selected to get to give a talk, and they just need someone? No, they no, made a they painting were... of code. <laughs> they were, they, they were uh, 
uh, a few of us at the company have given talks before. Our CEO and our director of technology have both given talks at Velocity conferences. Okay. And so they were asked if any of the engineers could. So myself, uh, one of our DevOps engineers, who's also named Christian, and our director of technology all got accepted to this conference. So we're all giving talks. Mazel tov. Thank you. And, um, and poor Quest is paying for us all to go. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Christian, will you be promoting the podcast uh, during your talk in front of 200 I, yeah, to 400 sure. people that would love to listen to our show because they're primarily in our target demographic? Will you be doing it? I would it? love to, but I can't because I am going on behalf of work. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Can you put a sticker on your laptop of our show? I could do that. Could you put a sticker on your head? I will not do that. Can we make a t-shirt for you? I have to wear my company T-shirt. Can we co-brand the T-shirt? How about pants? No, I already have a T-shirt. They're not going to see pants. pants. He's behind the podium. <laughs> I'll do the sticker on the laptop. That's Bandana a very on the forehead. Idea. Classy okay. move. Yeah, and then and then and then we'll have a plant in there that asks you, "What's the what's the sticker on your laptop?" And then you could say, "Oh, it's a podcast that I contribute to every week." All right, <laughs> sounds good. Okay, now we just have to figure out who's going to be at that conference and who wants to make five bucks. Put who wants to pay the thousand uh, dollar uh, ticket? <laughs> well, that's what I'm saying. We got to figure out who's going to be at the conference, who wants to make five extra bucks by asking that question, and who's also oh, going to listen to your I, boring talk I, at Velocity. Yeah. Christian, will you be doing a lot of speed? <laughs> <laughs> funny. Oh, okay, it's funny right. that he's going to be talking about <laughs> velocity issues at Velocity very slowly. <laughs> <laughs> and so the other thing about performance bottlenecks that is really important giggity. is <laughs> how many giggities are you going to work into the speech? That was a pre-giggity. Oh, at least two. At least two. <laughs> yeah. I, I, uh, I, I helped you with the abstract a little bit, but I, I guess we didn't, I didn't make the final cut, I understand. Um, mm-hmm. But I, I would love to help you with this talk in, in any capacity that I can. I appreciate it. So, good. Well, moving on to another way uh, I can help you and you can help us. It's time for your GitHub Issues of the Week. First GitHub Issue of the Week I stole from Christian. It's a pull request by uh, Daniel Meisler. <laughs> yeah, there we go. Oh, he said he it. He said it. He said it. He said it. By Daniel, Daniel Meisler. Uh, remove my password from list so hackers won't be able to hack me. And you can see on the diff for the pull request, he removes the line... Uh, dolphins from this text file that is called 10 million password list top 1000.txt and it's only a, just a little from December still valid true was the pull request uh, I don't think it was merged no it will not be merged there are no base conflicts with the there's no this branch is no conflict so could merge it but yeah it's kind of funny um, anyway <laughs> That's uh, right under Liverpool, the man, and Bandit. Then he has Dolphins. Um, if your password is on the list of 10 million top passwords, and I'm sure most words are, don't use it. Okay. How about this? Let's move on to our first real GitHub issue of the week. Our first real GitHub issue of the week comes to us from Google, Protobuf, their protocol buffer. Grammar for strings is incorrect. Well, I know what the problem is, is that engineers can't speak English very well. It's not that kind of grammar. Yeah. It's, it's context-free grammar used in the uh, abstract syntax tree that parses the uh, protobuf definitions. Now, we're actually going to talk again about abstract syntax trees later on in the show. What is that? 
It is a tree structure that's used for parsing uh, text, basically, where you have uh, a, a left branch, right branch, and in the center is an operation of some sort. So it's like a binary tree? No, not exa- not in the slightest, actually. Oh, and I guess in the center is still a child. No, the, no, no, that's the operator. Okay. So you have, uh, usually it's key on the left branch, or... So there's two ways the AST uh, works. You have, um, say, an equal sign, where then you have key on the left branch, equal sign in the middle, and right branch is a value. Or you have an operator, like a plus sign or a minus sign, and then on the left side is one value. Then you have the plus sign, and then on the right branch, you have another value. And these trees are you these trees are used why to create some kind of syntax free directed graph of how a program executes. Basically, so using uh, when you construct these trees, you then have a way to uh, to traverse a tree to figure out the uh, uh, basically executing a function such that it's a mathematical equation through a way of traversing it. So way you don't have like when you go, when you read a line that says uh, like uh, x equals four plus parentheses uh, two plus uh, nine divided by th- uh, three. You then know, okay, I need to divide by uh, nine by three first, and then add add two, and then add that to four. Gotcha. And so, what is the grammar for in this instance? What does that mean? Uh, essentially, this doesn't have your full traditional uh, string grammar. So, uh, for instance, protocol buffers does not allow an escaped uh, single quote. Ooh. Yes. Why not? Uh, it just doesn't at the moment. They need to add it. Gotcha. And I guess that's what this, uh, this pull request is. Ah! Uh, this allows strings <laughs> it's like... It's an issue, not a pull request. Oh, it's but... an issue. Sorry. Uh, that's what, so this allows strings like quote, 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 or any number of quotation marks, really both double and single quotes. Correct. Okay. And then the fix is that they just have to fix, allow this. Yep. Cool. All right. Anything else? Nope. Cool. Moving on to our next... GitHub Issue of the Week. Our next GitHub Issue of the Week comes to us from Servo. Consider adding support for a WebView tag. What's this about? What's Servo? So Servo is Mozilla's heavily optimized uh, rendering engine that they... It was like the poster child for Rust originally. This Ah. is the first thing they used Rust for. Is Servo in Firefox now? Uh, Parts of it are. Okay. And uh, what is... What is a WebView tag? Like a, like an in, in Android WebView or WebKit WebView? Yep. Huh. Uh, I I need some I need some little a little bit more information here other than just that because <laughs> it's already you're already in a WebView. Is it basically an iframe? Nope. Okay. The idea is like treating this like a, Servo is more functions more like a native app. It's not a browser. Oh, so it's like Electron. No, that's a browser. <laughs> okay. This is a rendering engine, so it's like how iOS or Android renders things, except the idea is it then uses HTML to render what would be a web page. So you can... Uh, th- this is a huge change, though, where all of a sudden, because you're assuming not everything has to be HTML and a, a website that Servo is rendering. So what can go will... inside of a web view? A, w- a website. But, like, you give it a URL and it loads it. Just like in iFrame. Yes, and but there's a whole syntax, uh, um, 
semantics issue there, though, where iframe can pollute things, and iframe has certain characteristics that uh, WebView does not. Like what? Uh, well, for one, like the cross-domain origin stuff, and um, like iframe can do a few things with like uh, loading as well as presentation, where iframe can have a border and not. Also, web views uh, tra- uh, create, uh, sorry, treat OpenGL differently than an iframe. As in differently, as in what? In an iframe, it runs in its uh, uh, that's rendered in its own thread versus a web view uh, renders OpenGL in the same thread as uh, the surrounding uh, tags. Well, wouldn't you want it rendered in its own thread so it doesn't block the rest of the stuff? It depends on what you're doing. Okay. Huh. Interesting. Um, all right. So what's the solution here? They just have to... Add the web view. Add the web view. Do you think to. it would be a good idea since it says consider? I, th- I think it would be interesting because it's not like HTML standard. Right, but, but isn't it, it? If you don't do cores checks, I mean, wouldn't it be just as exploitable as an iframe? No, no. It has di- different cross-domain characteristics. Like what? Like it has to be that it has to be ensured that it, the origin was presented uh, within the current context. So oh, so it's still, so you can't do cross-origin stuff. You can't inject some random URL. Okay. That makes sense. Do you yeah. think iframes will be supplanted by web views in the future? Uh, considering this is just a rendering engine and not a browser, right, right, right. I, rendering I, engine, I would not a say no. But that's how this starts. I mean, it could come from from Servo, and then they could just lump it into uh, to the how Firefox renders HTML. Sure. Okay. All right. Well, that was way too involved. <laughs> Moving <laughs> on to our last GitHub issue of the week. Our last GitHub issue of the week comes to us from comes to us from Dgraph IO Badger. Well, ba- the project's Badger. Badger Dgraph by Dgraph. D- Dgraph is uh, a database that uses Badger as the storage engine. Gotcha. Deadlock on single-threaded large writes, including reproducer. What is what is this? What is Badger? Badger is database. a key value store key that value. Uh, uses uh, an LSM tree to have optimized writes. Okay. LSM stands for. Uh, log structure and registry. Ooh. Good. Yep. Okay. And so what's the issue? So the issue is with when you have a lot of data, uh, it'll actually end up in a deadlock. And it just hangs? Yeah, if you try to write a really massive uh, load, it'll uh, just hang. Now, how massive do the loads have to be for the it to lock up? Uh, let's see what the reproducer has. I guess if your load is massive, it would reproduce, wouldn't it? I'm not uh, even going to start. <laughs> We're trying, Tyler. We're trying to... <laughs> Let's see. What, how long... Oh, uh, it is 64 megabytes in a single write. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so that's a pretty sizable write. It's not huge, but it's... For a key value store, that's a lot of... How much, how much did you say, sorry? 64 megabytes. It's not a huge thing, but for a single write in a key value store, I can see how that could be huge. Interesting. Well, it turns out that sperm carry over 37 megabytes of data, so it turns out it's actually more than your standard load. Anyway. I feel like you knew that off the top of your head. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't even have to look that up, did you? No, I, I still did. Um, <laughs> it, you know, it also can increase up to 48 if you don't. Anyway, moving on. Which <laughs> uh, is 75 megs. Yeah. Anyway, all right, well, after our 
GitHub issues, it's time for Tyler's Plus One. Oh, we never talked about the solution to that one. What? We never talked about the solution to that. Oh. Yeah. I'm so happy. You're was... too busy enjoying your loads. Yeah. Okay. I'm sorry. That was the first time he we did that. He was satisfied by the loads. John. I was satisfied with the heavy loads. Okay. What? Uh, what's this? So this is what's, terrible. What's the solution? Uh, so they might need to look under the hood to see if it is actually creating go routines. Oh, come on. Not a single thing. <laughs> <laughs> Or it could be that uh, MMAP or however they're actually committing to disk is uh, uh, having I.O. scheduling issues. Oh. So they, so you don't... This is this would be a good thing for your talk. So it's a performance bottleneck. And you'd have to identify where the performance bottleneck actually is. Yep. And that's why it's labeled as investigate, because they still don't know. Yep. Cool. Anything else? Nope. Okay, well, sorry to prematurely move on, but it's time for Tyler's Watch Wands! Our pull request plus ones are where we send out well wishes and acknowledgments of awesomeness to people and other organizations. Who's our first plus one this week, Tyler? This week, number one is Donut Studios. Donut Studios. Yeah, Donut warned the internet of the dangers of GitHub username reuse this week. Ooh. Very dangerous. Basically, uh, if you have some files hosted under a GitHub username and their repo, uh, people link to that hard in their code. And if someone were to delete all that code for some reason, uh, someone else could grab that username and screw a lot of people over big time. Well, and it looks like Go, if I'm not mistaken, has a very sp- very close uh, integration with GitHub where you can just kind of request GitHub repos as if there were a library. Well, all languages essentially do, but uh, it depends. Like Go, that, that is how uh, packages are pulled are from a Git repo directly. Uh, even like uh, NPM tries to tie things to a re- uh, repository if it can. Um, same thing with like Ruby, Rust, all of these. They, if there is some kind of repo, they'll tie to it. And this thing would apply to non-GitHub uh, repo things as well, like npm or something like that. Huh. So, don't reuse usernames. Well, you're not going to be able to know. When you sign well, up, you, you probably no, have... Now I'm just going to keep on trying to sign up as Linus Torvalds. Oh, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> Try it's going to work one day. GitHub.com slash Linus, Linus. Well, sorry, his, his, account, his account is actually Torvalds. No, oh, okay, then you could get Linus. Or Linus.Torvalds. The real Linus. Well, no, the whole thing is the, the, to reuse the exact same name. So say somebody either deletes no, their No, I know, what I'm saying is, is that you can set something up using one of those uh, names that sound like they're him and then delete it and then use someone and someone else goes in and turns uh, that into something malicious. I'll just bit spoof it. What, what's uh, S plus one in ASCII? T. Oh, man. S plus one is T. Okay, then I'll just be uh, tor- Torval. Oh. Torvalds. There you go. <laughs> okay, moving on. Your next plus one goes to... Goes to Disney Gaming. Disney Gaming. Uh, Disney now owning everything under the media hemisphere. Uh, <laughs> they announced, and I don't know if they could have done this before they bought, uh, whoever they bought, Warner Brothers. Fox. But uh, they will now have a Monsters, Inc. world in Kingdom Hearts 3, the video game. Wow. I will now be playing that video game. I didn't play the first well, they two. Own, they own Monster Racing, but I will I will be playing that as well. Yeah, but Kingdom Hearts. <laughs> uh, they also, the, the, there's been a long-time theory of the Simpsons are going to be in uh, Kingdom Hearts 3. Ooh. So uh, that's the game to play, apparently. Well, Kingdom Hearts 2, didn't that come out like 10 years ago? More yep. than that? They had a lot of side stories. Uh, 
The other, uh, the other part of the article mentioned that there is still no release date for it. Okay. I'm sure it's going to take them longer or maybe just as long to negotiate the rights as it is for them to actually make the game. It's no, they just own everything now. <laughs> well, not if the Simpsons were going to be in it. Yeah, no, Disney owns Fox. Right! Yep. That's right, they own the Simpsons now. Yep. Oh, no. Yeah, they could put Patty's Pub in that thing. <laughs> yes. Wow. Think of a Bob's Burgers in there. Oh my god. Oh, that's terrible. I want to go Goodbye, to edgy house. Fox shows. ABC used to be an edgy network right before Disney bought them, and then that went away. Does Disney so. own Seinfeld now? No, I think it's still NBC, and then that's uh, owned by Rob right. Reiner's production company. Oh, uh, anyway. Rob All right, Reiner. your last plus one goes to. <laughs> well, while we're on the subject of Pixar and uh, animated movies, uh, I wanted to thank the, the meme world this year because the memes, the social media memes, have uh, been keeping a nice shout out to all the parents as a friendly reminder that when the Incredibles 2 movie comes out this summer, you can kindly leave the kids at home because we've been waiting for that for 11 years and the kids have no business being in that theater ruining it for the rest of us. <laughs> Is it gonna, what's it going to be rated? I hope they rate it R so the kids don't even come up. I don't think Disney's going to uh, release a rated R movie. No, I'm sure they it'll be have. PG, but they might as well like have special showings after 9 o'clock that are R-rated so that kids, parents can't even like try. That would be nice. Real Is nice. it gonna? Are all of the Incredibles gonna have aged fifteen years? Ooh, I hope not. I hope not either. I mean, they are superheroes, so I guess I don't know. <laughs> maybe, maybe. Anyway, um, no, I think it's a rugrat situation. Everyone's still the same age, but then there's a baby in the mix now. Ah, there <laughs> we go. All right. Anything else? Uh, that's it. Plus ones. That's been our plus ones. Okay. Yeah, I'm having a hard time hear you, hearing you guys across the music, but like I said, the music is always so low that I have to punch it up, but I need to turn it down in the monitoring, which I can't do because everything just gets output as one track from the mixer. Needs more cowbell. Yeah, I got a fever, and the <laughs> only prescription is more cowbell. Or we can hear how Apple's doing with my... What happened? <laughs> With my, my Don't tell me something complete. on your Apple device broke. <laughs> you yeah, exactly. Oh no, my iPad just started <laughs> updating. It's time for this week's Apple Attack. Where we take a nice little poop on Apple. <laughs> this week, source code from iOS 9 has been leaked onto GitHub. That's right. Uh, it's code for their boot manager called iBoot, part of the, the one of the lowest layers in iOS that communicates uh, directly with the secure enclave and the device firmware itself to help provide a secure boot environment for Apple and their i and their i products. Uh, now that code for iOS 9 is on is on I almost said Reddit, it's on GitHub. And while it's a, a few years old, I'm sure they're still reusing most of it. What do you think, Christian? Well, one thing is, I, th- last past week I had a lot of fun with Rev, which is the Linux boot loader, but boot, uh, boot loader. Um, so I, I can tell you, uh, the more publicly visible this stuff is, the better. And like, and also, to see the code being public, it's 
it's like the argument of why is Linux public? It works totally fine, even though the code's public. I don't think this will affect anything other than, oh, this is how they do it. I, I guess, but I think this just gets more people trying to figure out how to exploit and jailbreak uh, iOS devices. Well, let's, and this, let's that'll ask. push them to actually, uh, uh, first of all, jailbreaking's not a bad thing, but uh, it'll also push them well, it to... Well, I mean, uh, it's, a, it's a bad thing in the sense that, I mean, not conceptually, it's a bad thing in that it always uses an exploit in the code in order to work. Right. Um, but... With all this, though, I, mean, I guess back to the root point of the code being public now, this might just, dr- dr- uh, it'll drive people to figure out ways to exploit Apple, which will then have them, uh, Apple themselves have to figure out ways to patch the code more efficiently. That's good. That's, that's a good let's, point. Let's ask the one most important question on Apple security, though. Will it allow the FBI and other government agencies to easily uh, hack your iPhone PIN number? Of course. Of course. Well, No. Unless there is like an already a backdoor that Apple has to that. You know, I think they already do because remember, in HF, the new uh, Apple file system, APFS, it allows for multiple key cryptography. That's, yeah, no, that's not. Like can, you can, su- the... It supports multiple decryption keys for some information. Is that, yeah, no, if that's one totally of those fine. decryption keys was given to the FBI, then they okay, can decrypt but yourself. that's not the case. This is How like, do you know uh, that's not the case? Because multiple encryption key encryption is not that. It, it, what it is is you can have two people agree to, uh, to decrypt something, in which case it is decrypted. Like, uh, look at Cloudflare's Red October project. It's that uh, for infrastructure where all of a sudden I have this secret that I don't want anybody to know, and I need to have two people. Like, basically think of it like uh, they're about to launch the nuke, and you have two people need to turn the key, not just one person. Oh, so, yeah, so it's like the Linux thing. So you and the FBI basically have to agree to open up a file on your computer. You and whoever the other key holder is. Which is the FBI. Okay, moving on. Apple is investigating AirPods that allegedly caught fire in Florida. (laughs) That's right, don't go to Florida. (laughs) Of course, it's Florida. Not even once. Because old grandparents tried to use it as an ashtray. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know how the song goes. Everyone from Florida is stupid. (laughs) Everyone from Florida is dumb. If they played guitar, this is how they'd strum. <laughs> Funny. Uh, it was already like it was like this when I got there. I'm not kidding. It was already popped. I didn't see it happen, but I mean, it was already fried. You can see flame damage. Uh, Jason Cologne told a local Channel 8 news station. Wow. He said it happened while he was at the gym this week, of course, and they started <laughs> to malfunction. <laughs> well, it's getting real hot in there. Does the uh, does the uh, actual clip from the news channel go? Local pyro reports. I don't know. We could we could find out. We click the link. Uh, Apple man says Apple AirPod earphone blew up. Oh, they're using that Google Envato player. Interesting. Uh, let's see if this uh, Aviato player. What? Google's <laughs> Aviato. On yeah, Google's Google sells a really horrible. Tonight, a warning from a Tampa man. Be careful if you own Apple AirPods. He claims one of those wireless earbuds blew... Just a Tampa man. Anyway, thank you, Stacey. Uh, And our last thing is is that uh, developers report recent enforcement of stricter rules for emoji use in iOS applications. That's right. Apple is not allowing you to use emoji as artwork. They have to be used as content. And you can see there's an image here. It's a screenshot of an app that was rejected. It has an emoji crying face. Game Center is disabled. Please enable it by going here. And then that was rejected. But once they took the emoji away, they got approved. Emoji Nazis. No emoji for you. 
Basically, that's really, I mean, I don't <laughs> no know why they would be against you. that. Uh, but it says GitHub client GitHawk faced similar issues with Apple rejecting the app for its use of emojis as media in various parts of the app. As developer and software engineer Ryan, uh, Ryan Nystrom explained, these instances of non-text input emoji use got flagged. But once you remove the emoji and, re- and replace them only as content and text input examples, the app was approved. But of course, Apple doesn't care about the big apps using it like Instagram or Facebook or Twitter because that's the world we live in. And so much for democracy. That's been our Apple Attack. That music is getting to me after a while. Yeah. It sounds this like it's playing on the back of a roller coaster while I'm on the ride. <laughs> it's a boss battle. Um, <laughs> yeah. Is that a drinking uh, game see. that you play in Long New England? Boss battle? Yeah, boss battle. Maybe. Maybe in maybe in New Jersey. Um, there you go. You get to you get to oh, battle Bruce. You know it's a drinking game to Springsteen songs. Exactly. Sign me up. Exactly. Whenever he names a New Jersey state highway, you'll have you'll have to take God. a drink. God, it'd be hammered by the third album, bro. <laughs> Heading down Route Dirt Seven. Damn it, Bruce! <laughs> and I took a left on sixty-four. Crap! <laughs> and I had to take another le- Okay um, Let's see <laughs> Turn back No <laughs> uh, Yeah Moving on uh, to a segment that uh, I don't know why I don't like it Christian I guess Oh it's because like we said last week You don't like government And what I mean by government Is you don't like women in power It's time for Teresa May the internet No I know I'm just, I'm just no, no, did More importantly week. though that that link in there caused my browser to crash, so now I'm logged in twice, and uh, yeah. What link? The link that I have for this for Theresa May murders the internet. Yeah. So can you say it like that? Theresa May murders the internet. Theresa May murders the internet. Oh, oh no! You have to talk like that. <laughs> Anyway, uh, it's not actually, on this segment, it's not actually an attack by her or the other Five Eyes or the other world government. It's actually about an app that was designed by Mr. Edward Snowden. And uh, it's called Safe Haven. Ah, Snowden. Snowden. It's uh, designed to be installed on the cheap Android burner phone. I don't know what accent that was. Haven uses the phone's cameras, microphones, and even accelerometers to monitor for any motion, sound, or disturbance of the phone. Leave the app running in your hotel room, for instance, and it can capture photos and audio of anyone entering the room while you're out. Whether an innocent housekeeper or, or an intelligent agent, an intelligence agent trying to use his alone time with your laptop to install spyware on it. It can then instantly send pictures and sound clips of those visitors to your primary phone, alerting you to the disturbance. The app even uses the phone's light sensor to trigger an alert if the room goes dark or an unexpected flashlight flickers. So we've disrupted try- Nest... Uh, not a, no, not exactly. This is trying to solve what's oh, known as the in- evil maid problem, where uh, about Christian's mom again. No, uh, an evil maid problem. Sorry, uh, uh, about uh, how it's hard to really protect any any device if you have physical access to it. You, as in the attacker, has physical access to it, and maid, as in a hotel maid that cleans up after you and then installs spyware on your computer while leaving a nice chocolate mint under your pillow. I can hear that whole last paragraph being read in the voice of the mother from Arrested Development. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. Well, uh, let's see. What's, what's next? It's time for our cryptocurrency 
connection. But you know what? I've got other music to play for this week because let's hear it from a pop group who can who create songs about cryptocurrency. Wow, that was very noisy. Is that English? No, they're Korean. <laughs> Is this music? I don't know what they're saying. Well, is this the translation of a Jerky Boys album? No, this is, this is just the new segment where Eric shares his porn history. Oh. I mean, honestly, the, the audio, you wouldn't be able to tell the difference. Anyway. Um, <laughs> that sounds like throwback, Eric. <laughs> yeah, no. Um, let's see. I don't know. I thought this would actually be much more informative, but it's not. Uh, we can forget about them. Uh, how about this? Wealthy Bitcoin <laughs> trader held at gunpoint, forced to transfer his fortune. The victims of the UK's first Bitcoin heist are hiding at a secret address after fleeing a- their 800,000 pound petty barn house, or pretty barn house, after masked men robbed them at gunpoint. A gang of four raiders stormed the barn, which sits at a private small residential drive on Monday, and forced cryptocurrency trader Danny Ashton, age 30, to transfer a fortune in Bitcoin to them on his computer. A neighbor today confirmed that the property where the violent Bitcoin robbery took place, uh, but said that Danny Ashton and his partner Amy J, 31, had not been there since the terrifying attack. The young couple ran Aston Digital Currencies Limited from their home. Mr. Aston was understood to use the name Goldieth in the online world. I am not one to do crime, but if I were, I would certainly hope that I would be considered a raider. The thing is, is that this is going to be very easy to figure out since you have the address of the person that it was transferred to. If, if I stole something and they called me a raider in the newspaper, I would hang that up on my wall. Oh, there you go. <laughs> How about Goldieth? That sounds that, like a porno name. That would be my downfall. That's like Goliath. <laughs> no, I know, but for gold. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. All right. Not too, not too much there. Um, there's more stuff shaking up with Equifax. Looks like that's not over yet. And How can you make anything worse in that situation? <laughs> Equifax has made it worse because there's more data... <clears throat> that actually has been released and they initially let on. Uh, yeah, I know. It's actually, it really is even worse. Let's Just hear it post- from our news department. Nobody on presents news to you. Washington, D.C. Last year held the record for the largest and most significant hacks and exploits of the 21st century so far. Not just the intense meltdown and specter exploits, which affect most CPUs produced this century, but an especially egregious error acquainted by Equifax, one of the U.S.'s three major credit reporting agencies. Equifax's data breach affected 145.5 million consumers, many of whom have already suffered prior identity intrusions and secure data breaches by other vendors. Since the breach, the totally not corrupt geniuses in Congress and the White House and their Consumer Financial Protection Bureau have been investigating this attack, only to be met with stone walls during the new administration, stalling like an old car with a bad gearbox. To boot, a new investigation reveals that the aforementioned attack actually exposed more information than was previously let on, including tax identification numbers, email addresses, and personal phone numbers. It seems that Law Dap not continues to protect the interest of large corporations over individuals like you and I. 
So what happens to computer security going forward? Only time will tell. And so many Americans are afraid of what happens next. We at least know the world still turns and the truth marches on. This has been News to Use. Brought to you by Pneumonium. Uh, and Snacky Snacks. You're telling snacky me they didn't drain the swamp? He's, <laughs> he's draining the swamp and then building another swamp. He could drain, drain the swamp that was in the White House of his own friends. <laughs> he's draining the swamp, but the drain is clogged. So it's not draining. So, Sarah yeah. Huckabee clogged it. <laughs> his hair got in the way. It's all clogged. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and on the heels of this, I'm sure all of the... All of the uh, excuse me. All of the lamestream media have been talking about uh, that time where Donald recently was walking up the stairs to Air Force One and his hair blew apart. <laughs> but that only serves... That's a, important. That only serves as a distraction to the real stuff that's going on like this and other things that are you don't want to know about. But there is a lot of extra information in this, in this uh, Equifax hack that hasn't been previously disclosed um it said tax id numbers for people that don't have social security numbers and uh driver's license numbers and other other you're screwed we're screwed that's it it's over and uh and and uh congress hasn't really been doing anything since trump got into office and the white house has really uh offered no help to the situation it, uh, there's they've allegedly put the brakes on the equifax data breach probe i don't know why unless of course equifax are donating a lot of money to the government probably probably yes uh one last thing about this uh bless you in our continuing caveve of the Google sw- uh, suite, suit, sorry, the Google suit, and how James Damore's career is over, um, two things. One, he's starting a Kickstarter to seek, it says, fun Google case seeking fairness for employees. Uh, they've got $33,686 raised of a $100,000 goal. 592 contributors so far. It ends on March 12th. Do you want to help James Damore fight Google? Nope. Nope. I mean, listen, they're asking for trouble with what we talked about earlier, where how they track you in airplane mode and how uh, they promote groupthink over individualism. Um, and they said, and, and uh, this article from the Weekly Standard actually talks about how, how, how much Google suppresses individuality in the, in the uh, allegedly, since I don't work there, we don't work there. We don't allegedly. Yeah, allegedly is a big word. But seriously, uh, that they allegedly have a lot of these anti-individualist policies that are made to... Uh, to survey people based on the group that they're in. And, of course, we're in a really terrible group, which is white men. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, the most fundamentally well, anti Never mind. Sorry? Go on. The most fundamentally anti-individualist policy that is, uh, that, that is, that, that is of that group-based quota that says we're going to decide who gets what based upon group, not upon individual. Not upon individual merit. We will inhibit individuals from obtaining opportunities to reach our group-based goals. According to DeMora's complaint, that was the policy Google higher-ups promoted. On March 30th, the lawsuit states, Google brought in two presenters for a meeting on Women's History Month, Ruth Peratt, the chief financial officer of Google, and Eileen Norton, the human resources director of Google. At the meeting, quote, neither Portrat uh, or Norton pointed out and shamed... Sorry, either Portrat or Norton pointed out or shamed and shamed, sorry, individual departments at Google in which women comprised less than 50% of the workforce. Alternatively, they applauded and praised departments such as the sales department where women comprised more than 50%. 
Google was angry at the staff that had not achieved the acceptable group quotas. Is this what the lawsuit's about, or is this guy's yes. loss? Okay, and that's that's fair. why we say his career is over. I thought, oh no, I thought his like his thoughts uh, or his uh, whatever his attacks that uh, Google was anti-individualistic was like based on the fact that you're not allowed to be a Nazi sympathizer. Well, which they also is synonymous with is. white men there. I don't know. No, I don't know, Tyler. And the thing is, is that because uh, I'm is sure that, like, part of that was part of what started. Is this, this is the guy that wrote the letter, right? Yeah. And that mm-hmm. was like part of his views. Right. I mean, and if it wasn't this guy and it wasn't his argument, I do have to say Google is rather cultish based on uh, people from Google I've encountered. I can totally, I could totally see that. So I guess it's just the bummer that it's coming from this guy. Yeah, no, like, it is a valid argument, but it's an argument for the wrong reason. But nobody <laughs> other than white, a white male is going to have to make this argument. No one else is going to cry out because they, comp- they, they weigh all these other groups higher than that. So you could have a group yes. of 10 white guys that are doing really good work, but it doesn't matter because they're white guys, and you replace them with 10 white women, you call the group diverse, and then who knows what's going to happen. We would hope they would do just as well. But if they don't, it's, Google will still praise them because their department and their group has more than 50% of women. Yes. So, and that's an unfortunate reality with the political climate that we're in, and I think that's all that we have to say about that. Um, but I just wanted to give give us an update because this is going to keep trucking on, and uh, I needed some I guess, kind of. I guess, I guess the problem is with with that is you know when they're when they're uh, applauding applauding all the all the places with more women, where does it stop? You know when are you when still going to be no applauding if the workforce was eighty percent women and most yes. men were hobos? Like, well, that's that's what he's alleging. I shouldn't but, say yes like I know, but that's basically what he's alleging is that who you are, your identity actually matters more than the job that you do while they're claiming that we shouldn't respect or disparage people based on their identities. Disrespect. Yeah, and clearly what I said is an extreme point of view from right now, but like if it keeps going for 30 years and it's successful and then like it gets uneven, that – Well, you know. I mean and the idea <laughs> of, of Nazi sympathizers is something that I don't necessarily want to get into because that word has been stretched way beyond its original intention. However, the ramifications that – come from being accused as being a Nazi or a Nazi sympathizer, those haven't changed. But they've, re- but they, you know, so this guy's literally a Nazi. Well, did he advocate anyway. by... Okay. <laughs> You're right. Sorry. Christian. You got, yeah. You got, you got, you got, you know what really grinds my gears? All right. Had it through. We know Eric has a boner, but Google thing. <laughs> no, I'm just a Jew that's been to all the Holocaust museums. I have very particular about my definition of Nazis. Anyway. Uh, hey, I saw take- the shoes. I went to D.C., Sorry. Sorry. But trying to lighten the mood. There we go. Well, why don't we lighten the mood by having a a house ad for our wonderful. Say, friends, do you live in New York City? Well, if you do, Pneumonium has a beautiful new product for you. It's called Where Am I? Your five borough compass navigator to help you get anywhere from Staten Island to the Bronx. Simply go to www.whereami.nyc and enable location services on your mobile device to find your closest neighborhood, borough, and three subway stops to you, wherever you are. No ads, no talking, just geospatial brilliance. That's Where Am I? Brought to you by Pneumonium. Pneumonium, reinventing media daily. Okay. Um, do we have any shout-outs this week? 
Uh, Yo! Somebody did something. Somebody did something. We're not going to give James Damore a shout-out. Um, but uh, actually, I like show. to give, Wait, I'd like to give one of our, uh, our great fans of the show, uh, Ricky Gilbert, a shout-out. Because I know that he listens to every one of these shows, and I don't really have the time to talk to him as much as I should. He's a great... He's a, a network-certified... More than network-certified. He's a multiple uh, IT-certified Apple person. He is a real Apple fanboy, much more than I'll ever be. And... Um, and I'd love to get him on the show to do a, to complain about Apple, and we could do that together because he likes rationalizing the awful things that they do with BS. And I try to call him on it, and he just responds with more BS. It'd be a great argument, anyway. Uh, so just a shout out to him; uh, he's a good friend. Um, anyway, you guys have oh, and yes, thank you to uh, to Olivia Ross and uh, Corey Casares who came on the show last week. We really appreciate it. Absolutely, and, uh, they did a great yes. job. Yeah, fantastic oh, job. Yeah. And, uh, yes, and, and Corey, as you know, is our Senior Vice President of West Coast Marketing. Uh, you know who is our Senior <laughs> Vice President of East Coast Marketing? Is it Wavy? No, it's you. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, your quarterly evaluation's not looking so hot, Christian. Ooh, no quarter. No. So, could you even get one more person listening to the show? Me? Maybe. Maybe. Yeah. Okay, and it's not going to be you just using another screen name, is it? <laughs> well, now that the idea's there. <laughs> okay. Uh, now Tell we me get less time the... to write a script that does that and call a friend. Hey, look, impressions, every month, impressions month, are month. impressions. I, I, uh, I'm working on some analytics stuff, and uh, I noticed that the reports were actually including double video start events. And uh, because if it counted it once when the video with any video starts on the website, and it counted it twice if it started in the widget. And so that's a great way to increase impressions and get a better rate from your advertisers. However, it does corrupt the pool, and you shouldn't be doing that. Unless it's accidental, which it was in this case. Um, anyway. I can't really speak to more of that. But uh, uh, something else that I do every day is work in JavaScript. And oh, you poor soul. I know, I know. And Me that's too. why... You too, Tyler. Yes, we're brothers, brothers in guys. arms of code. And, uh... Ow, that is loud! I turned down the wrong fader. Sorry. You know, the mix for the show's gonna be off. Uh, anyway. Uh, I wanted to talk about JavaScript because I've been writing JavaScript, I'm not kidding, really, this whole century. And, uh, Tyler, you've been writing it for, uh, like, four or five years now. And Probably more. We don't... I don't really know... I'll, I can't speak for you, Tyler. I don't really know what goes on when you write code. But it's, the, it's not what you write, it's the code behind the code. Usually if you, you say V8 Engine and C++, people shut up. Right. No, so, that's my world. Yes. So we're going to <laughs> Christian take Christian prize, we're... and then you say, no, dude, what kind of drink do you want? And then you go to the bar. <laughs> ah! Could have had a V8. Anyway. Um, <laughs> the thing is, is that... Uh, I really wanted to, in, in our tone of becoming more of a, a, an authoritative source of information and to continue creating, what was it what we mentioned last time? Brand safe, family friendly, monetizable content that's easily consumable. Let's Allegedly. tackle how JavaScript actually works. Um, why don't you start, Tyler? Me? Yeah, no, no, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> <laughs> let's, let's do one of our, we usually do brief histories. Of, of things when we tear stuff down and uh, this is the first in our Under the Hood series of JavaScript. I'm sure we'll do more with other types of languages and things. Um, JavaScript, like most good things, came from the 90s. And uh, it came from this browser called Netscape 
And I hate saying it like that because it makes me feel old. But I mean, you think guys about remember? it. Most kids today. Oh, I remember Netscape. Don't. Most kids today don't know the world of Netscape, Netscape Navigator. Netscape Navigator 3.0 Gold was my favorite. <laughs> if you don't and remember Netscape, it looked like a window and it had a forward button and a back button. Yeah, and it had, had a captain's a wheel. Uh, and it had Yahoo for search. Yeah, well, Yahoo was the biggest search engine in the, when Netscape came out. And it wasn't, before it was, was a search engine, there. it was a directory. Alta Vista. I used to use Alta Northern Vista. Lights. Alta, I, I, I used I was, to use Ask Jeeves. I was just about to say Ask Jeeves. Yeah, that no, was the Alta worst, because then it good. made people like enter Google searches like they were questions. Yeah, <laughs> which, like I, I mean, it was 20 years before teach our time with natural language processing, if you think about it. Yeah, it um, led to me like teaching my mom for the next decade, like, don't put the Y in Google. Don't right. ask it how. It doesn't help. Yeah. Well, now and now it pretty much does, but that's another story. So, yeah. uh, Mar- so Mark Andreessen, he was the founder of Netscape Communications and is credited with creating Netscape. Uh, he actually worked on Mosaic, which was the first web browser, which uh, came out of CERN with, uh, by Tim Berners-Lee. And uh, so he's qualified. He in- he envi- yes, and he envisioned a web that was more dynamic than static. Back in the day, the web page that you looked at was the web page that you got. And if you wanted to do <laughs> something else, and that's why everything was in frames, because that gave it kind of this dynamic look. And uh, if you wanted a web page to do something, you would make a link to go to somewhere else. Kids and these the- days, dynamic content then was people uploading new background images to their MySpace page. Right. Not even MySpace. Oh, this is 10 yeah, years before, is before MySpace. That. 10 years before MySpace. We're talking 1995, 1994. Yeah, this is when the entire web looked like Richard Stallman's website. <laughs> right. Or, 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 or like Craigslist. The Space Jam um, website was dope. The Space Jam website was dope. That was um, a little later, though. Most people, that 96. was from 96. Most people at the time were using AOL, which did not use Netscape. It used actually an embedded Microsoft Internet Explorer, but that's another story. Um, <laughs> so, Mark Andreessen founded Netscape, and he used to work on Mosaic, and he wanted a way of creating a, a lightweight scripting language that would allow a developer to interact with the document object model called the DOM. And... Um, have you heard of the... Uh, Christian, I'm sure you've heard of Scheme, the programming language. Yeah, I've used it back in my college days. What is Scheme? Scheme is a uh, derivative of Lisp that is simplified, and basically it takes away the more um, system side of it and leaves you with just, like, uh, the arithmetic. Okay. VB for Lisp. <laughs> uh, anyway... Uh, I don't really know exactly what. Not knowing Lisp, I don't really know. Can you can you draw oh, uh, that a little bit? A Lisp basically, is like it this. is a. <laughs> it is the uh, programming. Sounds like language. you're clipping a little bit. I'm sorry. Sorry, uh, it's the programming language uh, representation of um, what's the right word? Right oh, lambda math. calculus. Oh yeah, there you go. Is yes. Um And the Lisp compiler was historically written in Lisp, which I don't know how that works. Well, V1 exist. is written in a different language than oh. V2. One oh. one and so on. Yeah. Oh, okay. Was it the that chicken or the egg? Well, yeah. Um, <laughs> well, most compiled languages these days are actually uh, they're written in their own languages. What? Every, almost every compiled language these days is written in its own language. Why do they do that? Because uh, it's easier to bootstrap and it's a lot less code to manage. I can understand the less code, but why wouldn't you just write it in assembly? That would be ultimately performant. Uh, I wouldn't be cross-architecture, though. Right. Ah, okay. Well, so Mark Andreessen tapped Brendan Eich. He is credited or I, Eich, 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 thank you, Eich, the father of JavaScript, 
Ike, uh, he wanted, uh, Ike wanted to create a, a, a version of Scheme for the web browser. And uh, the web needed something of the sort, uh, something easy to grasp syntactically, but dynamic, and to reduce verbosity and speed up development, and powerful. Ike saw a chance to work on something he liked and joined forces with Andreessen. Now, at the moment, Java, the programming language, was up and coming. I think it really made its debut around really the same time, the mid-90s. And... Uh, it, it has peaked like maybe uh, like ninety six all the way out to like two thousand eight. It just had a monopoly on all yeah, uh, software and, development. Really, and that's when object oriented like programming the, really came into the fray. Yeah, it was, it was like you wrote C, C plus plus, or Java back then. Yeah, uh, I was actually when I took AP Computer Science. It was the first year they changed it from C plus plus into Java, which was did not get a five on that test because there was no teaching material. <laughs> Yeah, you didn't take it the first year. There was nothing. That's that, true. So anyway, uh, I the, th- the biggest science. problem actually was <laughs> the biggest problem was, was this: is that the AP exam required that you use Java standard classes, but my computer science teacher taught us how to do everything by hand, like link oh, lists, I, like I, data I structures. But by, by the time I took it, everything had to be by hand. Oh no! So yeah. the, on the uh, well, when I was taking it, it really expected you to use like the Java array list and Java linked list and all that stuff, and I oh, and we had done it by hand. So array, array list was the one exception, but you had to do linked list by hand. You had to do everything oh, else by, by hand. hand. Oh. Deeps, yeah. Well, that okay. Uh, Are you guys well, I guess done it changed about- anyway. Uh, so. Uh, the Java language was starting to get traction around the mid-90s. Sun Microsystems was making a big push for it, and Netscape was about to close a deal with them to make Java available directly in the web browser. And they called this Mocha. I'm sure you've heard of Mocha floating around before. Well, yeah, Mocha... Uh, so Java applets in the browser were a thing prior to JavaScript. Too. Right. Really? Prior to JavaScript? Yeah. Huh. Well, that's something that I really don't miss from that time. Uh... Because they always, they never, they never loaded properly. I don't know. Um, I mean, did you play RuneScape back in the day? Did I play what? RuneScape back in the day? No. That was like a early 2000s uh, hit. Well, it looks like uh, the word applet was first used in 1990 in PC Magazine. Anyway, moving on, back to the history. Um, the idea at the time was that Java was not suited for the type of audience that would consume Mocha, scripters, amateurs, designers. Java was just too big, too enterprising for the role. So the idea was to make Java available available for the big professional component writers, while Mocha could be used for small scripting tasks for the script kiddies. In other words, Mocha was meant to be the scripting companion for Java, in, an, in, in a way analogous to the relationship between C, C++, and Visual Basic on the Windows platform. You can write real stuff in C, C++, Visual C++, but you could write fun stuff in Visual Basic. Speaking of AP Computer Science, one of my classmates wrote a fighting game in Visual Basic for a senior project. Love Duck Street Fighter. Um, anyway. <laughs> uh, well, uh, yeah. Uh, it looked, it. It's kind of cool. Anyway, <laughs> yeah. uh, so he's, he's, by the way, that kid's going to be a cryptocurrency millionaire. Um, so... Uh, what was meant to be a scheme for the browser turned into something very different. There was a pressure to close this deal with Sun and to make Mocha a real scripting companion to Java. And that deal forced Ike's hand into crowbarring. Instead of making what he wanted, he made some kind of compromise with Java. So they have a Java-like syntax, but then under the hood, it actually functioned like scheme. Uh, and that's looked, how you got this abomination. <laughs> and that's how you got the abomination that was ju- no it JavaScript. It was born and immediately said, kill me. Exactly. In it, a was, really it was created. bubble. <laughs> It was created by mixing two technologies together that shouldn't be together. Um, Yes, 
It was a premature love child of Scheme and Self. I don't know what Self is. Self is another one of these uh, uh, early scripting uh, functional languages. Ah. Uh, but it looks like Java, kind of. That's what, yeah. I'm sorry, well, that's the early Mocha looks like Java, kind of. Uh, the prototype of Mocha was integrated into Netscape Communicator, which was their whole suite, in May of 1995. Uh, in short time, it was renamed to LiveScript, and then Live... Uh, well, originally it was NetScript, then LiveScript. Oh. Oh, my notes are wrong. Look at that. And then uh, in, 90, in December of 95, Netscape and Sun closed a deal. Mocha slash LiveScript would be named JavaScript. So it was actually a joint decision between Netscape and Sun. And it wasn't just Netscape leveraging the marketing cachet of JavaScript or of Java with Sun. It was actually uh, explicitly agreed between the two of them. And yep. uh, really, the rest is history, unfortunately. Infamous history. This well, is like, then you got all sorts of stuff like uh, that are still that's still history. Like uh, when V8 became a thing, and then when Node became a thing. I think Node really sparked a huge JavaScript boom, and now you have everyone who npm installs Leftpad thanks to that. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, and and uh, what is the difference between? Well, actually, we're going to get into the differences between JavaScript script engines and runtimes run in just a second. Um, but uh, let's see. Uh, let's let's take a, a uh, let's break down exactly what goes on inside of JavaScript. Um, so you've got you've got a, a stack, call a call stack, a memory heap, and an event loop. And what is a call stack, Tyler? Uh, that's basically the the stack of events and processes that are going to happen next on JavaScript. Okay, and what is a memory heap, Christian? Uh, memory heap is something that uh, is uh, a data structure within the operating system that uh, uh, objects within your code get allocated to when they last beyond the, the function scope. Gotcha. And an event loop is just an, a continuous loop that op- that operates using messages to do certain things. And no. It, it, so event loops use uh, p- uh, particular a- async uh, uh, events that are created via each OS's uh, various polling uh, methods. So, like on Linux, you got ePoll. On Solaris, you have dev a dev poll. So the JavaScript event event loop actually operates differently based on the environment that it's in. Uh, well, the OS, and then also uh, it can be implemented differently per browser or however it's being uh, run. Huh. Like, uh, so V8 itself doesn't have an, a built-in event loop. It's, uh, Chrome has an event loop around it that it uses. Gotcha. Uh, there's an idea of uh, zero delays. Like, if you use uh, the set timeout function and give it a delay of zero, that doesn't actually mean it's going to execute immediately. It's actually going to execute at the end of the function, right? Sorry, what was that? Which one? Set timeout. It's a very common optimization practice. If you if you have a piece of code uh, and you can say set timeout, you put it in a function, and then it runs with timer zero. It doesn't execute immediately. It executes at the end of that stack frame. Not necessarily. That executes at the moment that the event loop is free. Ah. Here we go. The execution depends on the number of waiting tasks in the queue. In the example the below... The event loop. The me- right. The message, this is just a message, will be written to the console before the message and the callback gets processed because the delay is the minimum time required for the runtime pro- to process the request, but not a guaranteed time. Uh, and a web worker or cross-origin iframe has its own stack, heap, and message queue. Two distinct runtimes can only communicate through sending messages via the post-message method. 
This method adds a message to cover uh, to the other runtime if the latter listens to message events. And then um, there's about there's blocking and uh, and not blocking I/O in JavaScript. Can you talk about that, Christian? Sure. Well, so that really only exists in, in uh, uh, certain runtimes, the uh, blocking uh, code. There's some things where it's just like, well, actually, I shouldn't say that. I think everything has some kind of blocking I.O. I, I think in browser, the easiest one is like uh, you create an HTTP request using the XML HTTP request uh, object. And you just uh, can say, uh, use the blocking mode or the, um, or the non-blocking mode. But isn't that, it, that's basically synchronous versus asynchronous. Right, that's exactly what it is. So in the synchronous version, it's just doing your standard uh, TCP sys calls, which are like under the... So JavaScript in itself is kind of... Uh, so uh, I, I recently heard this described in a really cool way uh, by Brian Cantrell, CTO, joined, used to work on Solaris, uh, created D-Trace. He calls uh, JavaScript dynamic C, like a manipulate C, and it makes a lot of sense, actually. Okay. Where, yeah, so uh, in the blocking sense, just, oh, give me a socket, uh, create the connection, and send the data on, like, a traditional uh, send uh, syscall. And then on the unblo- uh, on the uh, asynchronous one, you're, you're using, like, uh, if you're on Linux, this whole equal mechanism that's, like, mon- monitoring the uh, uh, file descriptor for the connection uh, in the kernel to wait uh, to see, is there data actually available to read in the user space yet? Uh, and until there actually is, uh, you can do other things. Gotcha. Gotcha. Oh, by the way, we forgot to mention uh, blowing the stack. That's when you <laughs> when you reach the maximum call stack size, and you get that that you get that error. Stack, stack overflow. Size, stack overflow. I don't know. I don't. I, I've never heard blowing the stack before, but it came out. It came up during my research here. <laughs> uh, so. I feel I like uh, I feel like it'd be really interesting to look at your memory heap in any given JavaScript thing and, and see what is left over there and what has to persist there. It's pretty scary on most websites, but I in imagine. like if you're doing backend code, like like Node, it's actually pretty reasonable. Uh, like uh, if even if you just run like a Linux perf and you're monitoring the uh, heap allocations with that. You can get some really cool things like eBPF that I've been doing a lot of work on and lately. I can get you some really detailed stuff with that. Huh. Well, well, what I... do you mean detailed stuff? Like I can just see like uh, with three eBPF, I can just see like every time yeah uh, every time there's an allocation to the heap, and I can get like what is the size of that and where is that in the code and uh, like um, uh, is there anything yeah, across the entire system that that's uh, uh, affecting, not just within the process? Huh. Uh, I have a question, Christian. Um, yep. And this kind of blows my mind every day that I see it, is that modern JavaScript, you know, makes heavy use of modularization, uh, usually vis-a-vis uh, the require module or the, uh, or the other one. I forget the name of it. Mm-hmm. Um, the import module. Uh, what is uh, – I can only imagine when I look down at the end of that code and I see that, you know, eight, you know, 300 different files are all tied together randomly and it has to – browser file all that to one giant file that are all connected is that just like creating a giant uh burden on the memory heap and is it a lot heavier on that as opposed to when you if i wrote all the code in line myself so no matter what that code's going to be loaded into memory even if you're doing separate files sure uh the thing the thing is like the like if you're using browserify for front end stuff that that's being used to optimize uh priority http2 it's, it was actually a lot more efficient to just grab one file regardless of size sure. than it was to just grab a bunch of files. And then HTTP2, though, now it can just be like, oh, I'm using one connection, but I'm getting uh, multiple files on a single thing. Huh. 
Actually, I'm realizing that but my... But then all current... the files have to be transferred sequentially, though. Right? Not necessarily. They just have to make sure they're all complete. Okay. And okay, I guess that everything is also compressed when it's sent to. So and then technically, kind of with, with hoisting, it should all work. And what Not is hoisting? Hoisting is like if you declare a function below where it's actually used, and the function should be available at the top of the scope. Okay. Yeah. Uh, generally speaking, uh, the way uh, the JavaScript uh, compilers or interpreters work is it does wait for the page to finish loading, and then it'll actually uh, uh, execute the JavaScript. I wouldn't unless... say the page finished loading, but the DOM has to be ready. Yes. So that unless you actually explicitly say don't do that, but you right, really unless should. you explicitly say page load. But um, here's a let's take a look inside the JavaScript engine. Uh, there's by the way, there's a lot of them. It's not just V8. There's Rhino, which is managed by Mozilla. It's open source. Spider Monkey was the first JavaScript engine, uh, which powered Netscape, uh, and uh, apparently still used in Firefox. Uh, yep. And uh, JavaScript Core, open source, marketed as Nitro and developed by Apple for Safari. KJS, which is for KDE, uh, and it was used in the Conqueror with a K web browser. Chakra for IE, and uh, also for uh, for I, for Edge for Edge. Uh, Nashorn, Nashorn, Nash, Nashorn, an open source part of OpenJDK written by Oracle Java Languages and Tool Group. Yeah, that's there to get uh, Node on the JVM. Ah, and Jerry Script, written by Jerry. <laughs> Jerry Smith. I don't, know who, Jerry. I don't know who Jerry. Thanks, <laughs> Jerry. It says a lightweight engine for the Internet of Things. Uh... <laughs> Does that mean you're gonna hack it really no, why, easily, that's so Christian? Funny. The, the word "Internet of Things" is just hilarious to me. Oh, it's the world we live in. And um, then, yeah. Uh, I was gonna also mention there is one that's in server. I forget what it is. Uh, it's not any of the ones we mentioned. Not that I'm aware of. Okay. Uh, so let's see. So the what is what is a JavaScript engine, Christian? A uh, JavaScript engine is a runtime that includes uh, an interpreter, compiler, and then some kind of event loop. Okay. Um, and it looks like V8. Let's take a look at V8 since it's the I, I'd say it's the widely used, most widely used, and it's possibly the most performance. Would you say that? Uh, it goes back and forth these days between Spider Monkey and V8. Do you want to start okay. a flame war, Eric? <laughs> No, I uh, I don't want to I don't want a peeing race out of this, but uh, no, I'm sure V8 a game you... contest. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's never uh, mind. Go anyway. on. They all yeah. have their uses. Uh, V8 <laughs> V8 used to have two compilers. There was full code gen. Well, uh, it still uses them. It's just now full code gen is just the initial part of it, and then, uh, and then the second one that crankshaft is uh, just in time <laughs> compiling. Yeah, and that's the part that does the optimization. Right, that's you have to jokes. crank the shaft in order to optimize the load. Uh, so so no. V8, though, is just, <laughs> just part of the runtime, though. There's still an event loop outside of this in both the browser or node or any of these. So the browser has its own event loop. Is that that just part of the browser? Yeah, so Chrome does its own thing for the event loop. And then uh, in a very similar manner, uh, Node uses uh, libuv, which is a C library that uh, kind of abstracts away that, like, figure, figuring out which OS you're, uh, uh, construct you need to use. 
Gotcha. Um, the V8 engine has a few threads internally, even though your code might be only executing on one. It has the main thread that does what you expect, fetch your code, compile it, execute it. There's a separate thread for compilation, so the main thread could keep executing while the former is optimizing the code. That would be the just-in-time. A profiler thread that will tell the runtime on which methods will... Er, the runtime on which methods we spend a lot of time so that Crankshaft can crank it some more. And a few threads to handle garbage collection. So first, like you said, Christian, V8 leverages full code gen, which directly translates JavaScript into machine code without any transformation. This starts executing very quickly, uh, and then... Um, now, what's interesting is that V8, unlike something like Java, does not use any intermediate bytecode representation. So that means that all of these compilers have to be rewritten for every different architecture, right? Uh, no, it just supports them, so it's just within the compiler. Oh, it just has a bunch uh, of branches, I guess. It, well, so part of it, too, is, like, yeah, uh, the code itself has all these, but then when you actually compile it, it has, like, like, uh, usually, so V8's written in C++, and... Wait, 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 wait like, hold on, hold on. Tyler, what are you, what are you doing? Sorry. What are you doing? Uh, there was a bag I had to open. Oh. Okay. A bag you had to open? What's in the bag? Not food. Oh. Okay. <laughs> Nice. All right. Anyway, moving on. And anyway, um, where is it? So with like C and C plus plus, you have these uh, like uh, these macros that you specify. So you can do like if def OSX, if def Windows, right? If def Linux. Right. So like I said, it's a bunch of branches to figure out what environment that you're in, and then do the environment specific code there. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so after. After the code is run for some time, then the profiler thread starts to gather metrics about it and figure out what, what methods should be optimized. Uh, and, then those, and then those get sent to Crankshaft. Is that correct? Yep. Cool. Uh, Crankshaft has its own thread. It translates... It, it, it takes your code and creates an abstract syntax tree. There's that. Uh, and, it, and it translates that to a high-level static single assignment representation called hydrogen what is a static single assignment representation uh so that's very hard to describe i guess but uh essentially if you have one line of code that uh, is uh, a value assignment it'll always be assigned in that address as opposed to like oh this uh, this line's being called and it's like oh a new address instead it's like oh this value is here so just use that uh, address the entire time gotcha so it's it's preventing copies, I guess, from the same debt for the same data occurring in multiple pieces of memory. Sorta. Sorta. Okay. Uh, so we've okay. So your code has been broken apart into an abstract syntax tree. It's been the first piece of it has been compiled using full code gen. It gets profiled with the profiler thread. That tells Crankshaft what optimizations to go to provide where, and then it creates uh, this sti stat high-level sti static. Sorry, I keep wanting to say single static. High-level static single assignment representation called hydrogen, uh, and tries to optimize that hydrogen graph which is interesting because I'd love to see a visual representation of how that works. But there are a few optimizations that go on during this time, like inlining. What is inlining, Christian? So inlining takes uh, the, uh, the first result of a function and just kind of saves it in memory. That's not, no, I'm not talking about inline caching. I'm oh. talking about inlining itself. 
where it takes the body of a function and replaces the call to the function with its body, which seems like the opposite of what you'd want to do because then you'd have, you would have redundant code that would technically take up more memory, wouldn't it? Well, so that does, in the case of um, a compiled language, but in an interpreted language, it's actually uh, a, a execution time uh, improvement. So uh, you're sacrificing memory So it's faster, but it there. has a higher cost. Yes. Wait, I read it the other way. Never mind. What? I read it as they take if if my if one function x calls function y calls function z, then they put function z inside y inside x. Yeah, and then they put that into the body of the code. Yeah, yeah. Okay. That's what I thought. Right. Uh, now here's where it gets really interesting. There are these there are these things called hidden classes. Um other other JavaScript engines can use dictionaries to find the locations of object properties in memory. That's very inefficient. So V8 uses this thing called hidden classes, which I barely understand how it works. You'll have to help me out with this, Christian. But basically, um, when you have a class, you have... Let's see. Uh, let's say you have a class called point, and a point takes an X and a Y coordinate. When you create a new point object, V8 will create a hidden class, and let's call that hidden class C of zero. Now, I don't, I don't know why, but this is just so it can find where it is. There's no properties that have been defined for point yet, so C0 is empty. Once the statement in the point constructor, this.x equals x, this.y equals y, once those statements are executed, V8 creates a second hidden class called C1 that is based on C0. And I don't. I guess this is all being done in C, C++. So this you is can being have done classes in, that are based uh, on you can this, have inheritance. This is being done in bytecode. It doesn't translate directly to C++ ever. It's just uh, creating an instruction sets that are. Well, what does it mean uh, by classes? Kind of these are these are classes, uh, but there are in the sense uh, you're not like creating new C++ code. Uh, it's just like you're using C++ code to create these instructions. Gotcha. So you have you have your first hidden class C0, which is the initial hidden class for your point object. Then you have C1, which is the location in memory relative to the object pointer where the property X can be found. And X is stored at offset 0, which makes sense because it was the first one. Um, let's see. Uh... V8 will also update C0 with a class transition, which states that if property X is added to a point object, then the hidden class should switch from C0 to C1, which then gives away the locations in the memory. Uh, so the hidden class for the point object below is now C1. Every time a new property is added to an object, the old hidden class is updated with a transition path to a new hidden class. Hidden class transitions are important because they allow hidden classes to be shared among, uh, amongst objects that are, that are created the same way. If two objects share a hidden class and the same property is added to both of them, transitions will ensure that both objects receive this, the same new hidden class and all of the optimized code that comes with it. So I guess if you have two point objects and they both have the same X coordinate, then it would point to the same hidden class where the memory location is? Yep. Cool. Uh, a new hidden... Okay. Uh, and this process is repeated when you have this dot y equals y. We said, you know, this point has x and y coordinates. Um, 
Wow. So a new uh, so Y creates a new hidden class called C2, and a class transition is added to C1, saying that if property Y is added to a point object, then the hidden class should change to C2. Now, it looks like you have one hidden class per object. That doesn't seem... That doesn't seem right. Why not? <laughs> the, the, why, why would you have one hidden class for every object property? It's a lot of objects. Properties, that's, not objects. Oh man, that's insane. So it's if you fine. have if you have a person and you have a hidden class for their height, their weight, their age, their gender. Yeah. Why not just throw all of that in the in the hidden class that just has the memory offsets? Because you don't know if those are primitives. You don't know if those are primitives. Well, if they are primitives, then you don't need a class, but if they are not, then you do need a class. So just using a class, regardless of what you actually need, is a lot more efficient. And there's no overhead in creating these uh, classes? Uh, I see. You're no, going to have to uh, create so, that much anyway, so this is just an optimization on top of what you would have already needed in the memory. Yep. A, cl- a class with no attributes or method, methods is uh, basically nothing. It's just uh, a balance that is kept. Huh. Yeah, so every single like string that's ever stored or number is ever, that's ever entered into the thing is just stored there, and then if anyone else happens to share that same piece of data, it just grabs it from the graph because it knows it's there. Yep. Interesting. Hidden class transitions are dependent on the order in which properties are added to an object. For example, if you have, if you, we have our, our point class, if you say P1 equals new point, P2 equals new point, but then you go P1.A equals 5, P1.B equals 6, and then with P2 you go B first, and then A, you would assume that both P1 and P2 would share the same hidden classes and the same transitions, but it actually doesn't because of how they're accessed in order. Which is very interesting. Hmm. So, in that case, then that really blows the whole optimization, doesn't it? No, makes sense. No, but I'm saying, but then they have duplicate classes when it's still well, storing the same data. If you were to do it without order mattering, you have to scan the entire thing of attributes each time. But I thought, but it just says order matters. Yes, so that way you can do like a search in a much more efficient way. What do you mean? So one thing is you can do hashing on this, but two, you can also do a, a, a search where it says, okay, if order matters, I know that, the, uh, that I can just do like a... Uh, uh, based on the length of this, the, the thing I'm looking at for is within a certain spot. You can binary search through uh, through your attributes as opposed to having to scan each, uh, the entire thing of attributes each time you try to access one. Ah, okay. Uh, whenever a method is called on a specific object, the V8 engine has to perform a lookup to the hidden class of that object in order to determine the offset for accessing a specific property. After two successful calls of the same method to the same hidden class, V8 omits the hidden class lookup and simply adds the offset of the property to the pointer itself. For all future calls of that method, the V8 engine assumes that the hidden class hasn't changed changed, and jumps directly into the memory address for a specific property using the offset stored from previous lookups. So they have these classes in the class transitions, but then they're also kind of just hashing the locations in memory anyway, or in addition. Your mom's a hash location in memory. It's funny. Um, <laughs> but oh, no, wow. I'm serious. Like, so it's a stoned hookup. <laughs> But, um... But, um... Can you repeat the question? Okay. <laughs> Whenever... 
Yeah, you spent all your brain power on the crappy joke. But whenever, <laughs> Did you stand whenever up all night met- thinking about that one, Peter? <laughs> whenever, whenever a method is called on a specific object, the V8 engine has to perform a lookup to the hidden class of that object in order to determine the offset for accessing that specific property. That makes sense. After two, the, okay, that makes sense. After two successful calls of the same method to the same hidden class, V8 omits the hidden class lookup and simply adds that offset in memory to the object pointer itself. I guess rather than the class transition. After T, you can confirm that it's not moving anymore, so that offset is always going to be the same size. I feel like that's going to—you could—that's exploitable somehow. No, you don't know what that offset is. <laughs> well, what if you run a ran a profiler on it? Then it, you still don't get the offset, depending on the profiler, actually. But uh... interesting. Well, and since it and since yeah. it doesn't need the lookups anymore, that further increases execution speed. Yep. Uh, now, let's go back to the graph that we talked about, about the abstract syntra- syntax tree, the single, uh, what is it, the static single assignment graph, and then the hydrogen graph. Uh, after the hydrogen graph is optimized, crankshaft lowers the shaft to a lower level representation called lithium. Most of the lithium implementation is architecture specific, and register allocation happens at this level. So it's actually getting to machine code. And that's what it says. In the end, lithium is compiled into machine code. Then something else happens called OSR, on-stack replacement. What's that? So on-stack replacement is not JavaScript-specific. It is kind of across uh, most compiler optimizations for uh, um, machine code, where uh, basically if you can have an entire uh, call frame... uh, the same as uh, one, the same as another. You just reuse the uh, first call frame that's identical. Wait, say that. You know what? Actually, I'm sorry. Let's take a step back because what we were talking about before with the double lookups that is inline caching. Right. So why don't? Okay, let's. Why don't you re-explain what inline caching is? So inline caching is the idea that you have uh, this uh, generated code that you got from uh, compiling a certain function, and uh, based on the first time, you just uh, store it, uh, and if you frame a second time that it's the same result, then you store that, and you use that. Uh, the you offset. store the location in memory, not the, yes. the pointer to it, not Sorry. the data. Yes. So the first, so you have originally with these cla- hidden classes and class transitions, you have basically a map of how to get to the data. But after you've successfully looked up the data twice, you just store the location in memory since it's probably not going to change. Correct. And that's your inline cache. Right. Yes. Yes. Okay. Um. Let's see. All right. So now let's go back to lithium and machine code. So, lith- so I don't know why all of these stages have names, hydrogen and lithium and crankshaft. Uh, well, That's still marketing. Yeah, it is. Uh, so lithium is compiled into machine code, and then on-stack replacement happens. So what's on-stack replacement again? So on-stack replacement is a way to actually uh, re- uh, switch between an interpreted or un- un- unoptimized code in a JIT uh, compiler. Gotcha. And what does it do? It lets you switch between either here's a new version of this function while your code is already running, or you're using the original oh, version. Oh, I see. So it does the it does the code gen compilation, which is unoptimized, and in a separate thread, it's optimizing the code and does an on-stack replacement with the optimized code on mm-hmm. stack. This way, when it gets to that stack frame, then it runs the optimized code instead of the unoptimized code. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's really cool. that's really interesting to think about, like web pages, how they like boot up and they work, but they're kind of like Windows where it boots up and it says it's ready, but it's like not really ready. 
Yeah, it's <laughs> odd that everything basically has to be compiled twice, once to be compiled, and then once to be optimized. Yeah, that's pretty standard with high-level languages that aren't, like, well, C Well, no, or, I mean, the uh, high-level no. language gets compiled into a lower-level language, which gets compiled into machine code. Right, uh, with the exceptions of, like, C and Go, where they're just compiled throughout the assembly. Right. But, uh, or C++. Well, C++ has uh, name mangling, but then it gets compiled, but same thing, basically. Okay. Um, and, uh, let's see. There are safeguards called de-optimization to make the opposite transformation and revert back to the non-optimized code in case the assumption the engine made doesn't hold true anymore. This is very much like speculative execution. That's fun. Uh, yeah. Uh, let's see. And then there's garbage collection. Which, That's a uh, union. There you go. Sanitation <laughs> department. V8, V8 uses a traditional generational approach of mark and sweep to clean the old generation. What is that? So in, the, in that case, it'll um, it'll scan and then... Uh, uh, so there's a, a bunch of ways to do... Um, <laughs> there's a bunch of ways to do... Uh, Tyler's having fun over there. <laughs> Sorry. There's a bunch of ways to do uh, garbage collection. Uh, mark and sweep, uh, reference counting... And white, gray, black are the three most common ones. I know PHP does reference counting. Uh, yeah, a lot of slower interpreted languages do reference counting, yeah, so it's Python. Nice, nice jab there. Uh, but no, it's true. It's, uh, reference counting is traditionally slower. But um, Okay, well, what is, what is mark and sweep? Mark and sweep is the idea of it, it does do a scan, and when it realizes that the object is no longer referenced anywhere, it'll mark it for later garbage collection. So it's still allocated in memory, but you know you're no longer scanning that object either. And I guess because and all then, the code has been profiled, it knows where the references are going to be, and it can tell in the future if it's not going to be needed. Correct. It's pretty cool. Uh, in order to control the garbage collection cost and to make the execution more stable, V8 uses incremental marking. Instead of walking the whole heap and trying to mark every possible object, it only walks part of the heap and then resumes normal execution. The next garbage collection stop will continue from where the previous heap walk has stopped. This allows for very short pauses during normal execution. Just like a garbage truck. Basically. And uh, it's han that's handled also by a separate thread. Um, let's see. Uh, moving on, in 2017, a new execution pipeline was introduced. Uh, it's called Ignition. Ooh. Or, sorry, the new uh, execution pipeline is built on top of Ignition, which is V8's interpreter, and it's called TurboFan, V8's newest optimizing compiler. What is that? It's just a new way of stringing together all of these things. That is in a much more optimized manner. Oh. Okay. So the optimizer is more optimized. Right. Oh, right. Wow. Yeah. And uh, here's here's a quick quick list of how to write better, more slash more optimized JavaScript that will give the compiler an easier job of going through your code. The uh, maintain the order of object properties. Always instantiate your objects in the same order so that hidden classes and subsequently optimized code can be shared. Remember, we said if you're there, if the object properties are instantiated out of order across the same objects, then it effectively duplicates the hidden classes or some of them. Uh, nice. Dynamic properties. Adding project, adding properties to an object after instantiation will force a hidden class change and slow down any methods that were optimized for the previous class. That's interesting because I'm very guilty of that one. 
Uh, instead, and this is a general programming best practice, which we've got lazy with in JavaScript, I know. Instead, assign all of an object's properties in its constructor, which is now very easy in ES6. Yeah, ES6 helps uh, a lot with that. Yes. Uh, in methods, code that executes the same method repeatedly will run faster than codes that, a- that execute many different methods only once due to inline caching. Uh, arrays. Avoid sparse arrays where keys are not incremental numbers. Sparse arrays, which, oh. Well, that's very useful, though, in doing an index. Like, if you have to count the number, the frequency of, of numbers within a given string, or the frequency within a, uh, letters of, within a given string, it's a good way you can do that, is create an array, and then use the index of that array to be the number, or the ASCII value of the character, and then you just increment it. But, if you, but that would create a sparse array. Uh, iterate an sparse object. Arrays which, uh, I'm sorry? Sounds like you should just iterate an object. Well, something. no, the thing is that sparse, sparse arrays which don't have every element inside them are a hash table. Elements in such arrays are more expensive to access. Also, try to avoid pre-allocating large arrays. It's better to grow as you go. That's a message from Crankshaft. Um, <laughs> Come on. What does We're that trying. mean, grow as you go? <laughs> I'm sorry, I know what that means. What I mean, I mean in JavaScript, what does that mean? <laughs> I guess you, I guess you don't have to declare the array size when you instantiate the array, so it doesn't, doesn't really matter. Um, is that it? I guess because in like got number five. <laughs> no, I mean, I mean with the with the arrays, with pre-allocating yeah. large arrays, because in other languages like like Java or C, you have to declare the number of elements in the array when you instantiate it. Yes. Okay. Um, and also, don't delete elements in arrays. And uh, don't delete elements in arrays. It makes the keys sparse and then converts the array into a hash table. Very interesting. Unless, of course, you're referencing, unless you're using like array notation to reference an object which isn't really an array, then that's different. Uh, but also, delete calls are typically expensive in JavaScript, from what I understand. So you shouldn't really be using them anyway. Um, unless you absolutely must. Uh, tag values. V8 represents objects and numbers with 32 bits. It uses a bit to know if an ob- if it is an object, flag equals one, or if it's an integer, flag equals zero, uh, called an SMI, small integer, because it's 31 bits. Then, if a numeric value is bigger than 31 bits, V8 will box the number, turning it into a double and creating a new object to put the number inside. So, if you use if you use doubles or floats, it's not an object or an integer. Does V8 create it? Excuse me. Does my brain kernel panic? Does V8 have... Does it transform doubles and floats and other non-integer variable primitives into objects? Yeah, uh, in, in JavaScript, everything is a um, class. Uh, in uh, the lower level thing, they're all objects. Unless they're integers. No, even those. Because yeah. they have methods. <laughs> not That's if you use the uppercase integer class, but not saying int. Ah, uh, correct, yes, you're, you're right. correct. Um, okay, that's odd. But if you use double or float, then that's a class. Oh, interesting. Um, so it will box the number, turning it into a double and creating a new object to put the number inside. Try to use 31-bit signed numbers whenever possible to avoid the expensive boxing operation into a JS object. You don't want to box the crankshaft into your JIS objects, Tyler. Damn it. <laughs> yeah. I'm trying. Just, you, really, that, you really reached there. Okay. Sorry. There's so many loads. Okay. Well, I think that's I think that's a, a good primer into uh, looking under the hood of looking under the hood of JavaScript. 
I mean, you didn't begin to talk about event loops, which I think are the more interesting part. But yeah, part well, we two. did begin to talk. We did begin to talk about event loops. But you're right. We could we could do another episode on this next week. Yeah. Yeah. Let's yeah. yeah. Let's call it a part two. We can talk about other other types of events. I know we haven't really talked about paint events and those types of optimizations and how. Well, I think uh, just event loops in general would be a good one to talk about. Like, okay. Uh, well, then let's <laughs> let's do that next week here on Polyworkwell. Okay. Uh, so why don't we end, because we're almost actually at the two-hour mark, which we haven't done a two-hour show in a long time. Um, I'll give you guys a choice, the last article to read. Either Cincinnati bus driver eats chili while getting into a fatal crash. Yes. Or <laughs> Indian officer busted into trading secret info with Pakistani spies for nude pictures. Chili, chili. <laughs> yeah, the chili. chili? Although I, okay. I will, I'll read that other one on my own time. Okay, here we go. Uh, Dateline, Cincinnati. The driver of a metro bus who killed a pedestrian two years ago was looking down to throw away a cup of chili when he ran over the man, a lawsuit alleges. Stephen Frank and his daughter, Emily Frank, were in a crosswalk in Cincinnati's Hyde Park Square when they both were struck by the bus, the lawsuit says. Stephen Frank died, and Emily was, quote, knocked to the pavement and injured. She heard her father scream as she was dragged under the bus. You guys picked a good story. Dragged under the bus while the bus continued through the intersection. The driver, 59-year-old Tyrone Patrick... Uh, pleaded guilty to vehicular homicide and was sentenced in August 2016 to three years of probation. According, this is a new story. Probation one and two. This guy killed the guy before this, and he's still driving a bus. In, uh, maybe, yeah. Cincinnati I don't know. is supposedly the chili capital of the world. Ah, there you go. And I think doesn't Cincinnati chili not have any beans? It's just beef, or is that Texas? That sounds like a Texas thing. Yeah. That sounds like a Texas thing. Uh, the driver, 59-year-old Tyrone Patrick, pled guilty to vehicular homicide, was sentenced in August 2016 to three years of probation. Urban Dictionary thing? Tyrone Patrick? No. Um, Think oh. about what you said earlier. Okay. Um, according to the lawsuit filed last week in Hamilton County Common Pleas Court, the crash was on Patrick's 40th as a Metro bus driver since... What? It was his 40th crash as a Metro bus driver since he was hired in 2006. He had, quote, had, he also, quote, had other prior instances of distracted and or unsafe driving during the approximately 10 years as a driver for which he was reprimanded, the lawsuit says. So he got a slap on the wrist. <laughs> 40 times. Yeah. Dozens of accidents later. Dozens of accidents later, he kills someone. Uh, upon information and belief, Patrick was eating chili while driving the 14-ton Metro bus, the lawsuit says. Emily and her father were in a crosswalk crossing Erie. Yeah, I think uh, we heard I enough. Guess, yeah. <laughs> I, I like the and belief part. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, information and belief. He was eating chili. We are hoping to resolve this without filing a lawsuit and having to relieve all of this in, relive all of this information again. Unfortunately, that didn't work out. This is just so terrible. Wow. All right. Fun that note. Was, that was supposed to be a depressing story. Well, then don't worry. He's going to become a uh, MTA subway uh, conductor. Oh, there you go. You know what? You can probably eat chili while while conducting the subway. So, especially on the automated trains. Um, you don't want to talk about the Indian Air Force captain arrested for espionage this week? Turned was lured into a honey pot by two women with whom he exchanged in intimate photos. Save it for next week. We've gone too long. Well, that was about it. The women turned out to be Pakistani agents. Okay, that's all we've got. 
for this week. Mm. But we'll, we'll continue inspecting the engines and internals of JavaScript next week. So why don't we do our usual sign-off? Christian, do you approve of this week's pull request? Looks good to me. Tyler, how about you? I do. And how about our wonderful studio audience? Yes! <laughs> wonderful. Well, then let's all hit merge. The views and opinions expressed on Pull Request do not necessarily reflect those of Pneumonium, LLC, or its subsidiaries. This week's theme music provided by Wolfpack. Visit them at 